this episode, Justice League America number 27 and Justice League Europe number 3, cover dated June 1989. Welcome to the 27th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not doing this alone. Every single episode, we feature two different guest hosts. We'll chat with my second co-host in just a bit, but my first co-host today not only likes comics, but he's a professional author, illustrator, and cartoonist who just happens to have produced several New York Times best-selling children's picture books. He's currently working on a 12th installment of his New York Times best-selling graphic novel series Olympians, where he retells classic Greek myths as action-packed, high-drama adventures. This man lives and breathes Greek mythology and superhero comics and has some pretty fascinating insights into the creative process. But me, personally, I like to think of him as Steve Zahn's character in the movie You've Got Mail. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. George O'Connor. Welcome to the New York Embassy, George. Thanks for being here. How you doing, man? Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm doing great. Dude, we've been talking for a little while off the air, folks, and George clearly has a passion for the Justice League, and I'm so excited to have you on the show. You've got amazing books out there. I've read the first Olympians book with Zeus. It was absolutely phenomenal, and you can see your passion for the comic book work in there, and I'm just thrilled to have you here, and I really appreciate you making the time to be on the show. Oh, man. It's like I said, it's my pleasure. This is one of my favorite episodes. I mean, issues. It's going to be my favorite episode. (laughs) Uh, I can't overstate how important the series has been to me, both growing up and still to this day, so I'm ready to geek out hardcore. Awesome. So I cracked a joke there a little while ago about you being Steve Zahn, and you've got mail. It probably left a few people scratching their head. Now, as I understand right, you worked at the bookstore, Books of Wonder, in New York that film was based on. Is that true? Yeah, this is true. Well, I was in college, and the few years after, actually, a few years, like six years afterwards, I was working in and out of this place, Books of Wonder. It's a children's bookstore in Manhattan. And in order to tell the story writing, I have to backtrack a little bit. So clearly, by being on this podcast, you could tell I like old things. (laughs) I I started working at this children's bookstore and I quickly became the guy that you went to when you were purchasing old and rare children's books. Okay. You know, the owner of the store, that was his passion, but I was the other person on staff who was like, wow, old books are cool. So whenever (laughs) somebody was, you know, wanting to buy those books, I tended to handle those sales. And one day we got a phone call from this woman who was looking to be purchasing some old copies of Oz books. You know, like Wizard of Oz. I don't know if you know this, there's like literally 40 Oz books in the official canon. Seriously? Yeah, L. Frank Baum himself wrote 12 and then a bunch of short stories. Okay. And then all these other people. It's this huge thing. So this woman was on the phone asking me about these things, buying all these Oz books. We're hitting it off, talking. I'm being very chatty as it goes. I'm ringing her up at the end. I'm taking her information to ring it up. Mm -hmm. And I say, and so what's your name? You know, on her credit card. And she goes, Nora. And I go, you know, sometimes you would say like, you know, is that B as in Bill? I go, Nora as in Efron? And there's a pause. And she goes, actually, yes, I am Nora Efron. (laughs) And so I had this moment like, oh, cool. That's really awesome. Like, you're really great. And then she started to come around the store a lot more. And she was kind of saying how she was working on this idea for a movie. Mm-hmm. And that movie ended up being You've Got Mail. And they tried setting it in the bookstore while I was working there, but the store was really tiny. It wouldn't work. So they kind of recreated it on a set in Manhattan. But she put in the old and rare books guy in the store who Steve Zahn plays is George. Oh my gosh. See, okay. When I when I put that Steve Zahn line in the opening, it was just because I knew you worked in the bookstore. I did 
didn't know you were actually connected to the Steve Zahn stuff. Yeah, he actually, both he and Meg Ryan worked a day in the store <gasps> just to try to get, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's insane. Well, the best part is Meg Ryan, she clearly loved it. She like just got there. People were getting rung up. They're like, oh my gosh, Meg Ryan's ringing us up. Steve Zahn ditched out halfway through the day. Oh, don't tell me He's that. He's like, I don't really, you know, he was funny about it. He's like, I don't really need to be here. I'm like, probably not. I mean, <laughs> like, like the, the attempts they went to, to get everything straight, like on this bookstore, like the owner had written his own piece of software to ring up sales. Mm -hmm. Nora Ephron and her production people bought the rights to this computer software to use for this movie. Oh my gosh. I don't even remember if there's a scene where you could see the computers, <laughs> but they really went out of their way to do this. So that, you know, that's my big claim to fame. I'm like the basis for this Steve Zahn character. That's amazing. I'm blown away by that. I love that movie. I love Steve Zahn. This is great. So he played what? Lenny, I think in that thing you do. So I'm just going to call you Lenny for the rest of the episode. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, why not? Let's go for it. Perfect. <laughs> So, all right, tell me. So, obviously, you worked at Books of Wonder. You got a chance to meet a lot of really big name folks involved in the book publishing industry. Is that, is that how you got your break because of Books of Wonder? Yeah. So many people try to break into the business and just don't do that sort of research to really get to know stuff. I broke in through kids' books initially. I do comics for kids now, but I, I started out doing picture books. And it was a great place to be. Like, literally, on my first week on the job there, I met Shel Silverstein. No way. Yeah. And he looked just like that creepy picture of himself on the pack of the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what was going was through my head. <laughs> yeah. Middle of winter, he was wearing sandals. He was checking out the old and rare books. <laughs> And I kind of went over and talked to him. He had this raspy voice, and he's like, so what's your story? Do you, do you want to do kids' books? I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> and he gave me this advice that I still use to this day, oh. which uh, I'll share. I was going to say, are, are we, is that okay? Yeah, this is good advice. All right. He's, he looks at me and winks. He goes, if he because he, he found out I wanted to be an illustrator. He's like, you should write your own books, too. You get paid twice. <laughs> That's brilliant advice. Like, right? I'm like, okay. And uh, that's how I broke in. I, I worked at this place for about, I don't know, I was maybe there for about five years. Okay. And uh, I noticed a lot of people came in looking for books on superheroes for their kids. Mm. We did not carry licensed books. So we didn't have any Superman or Spider-Man or whatever books. But we would get these requests a lot. So around 2001, I wrote this picture book called Kapow. Mm -hmm. And it was about a little boy pretending to be a superhero and basically spreads all Alternate. You know, it starts off, you see him dressed up as a superhero, you turn the page, and you see, like, his imagined avatar, where he's this huge, hulking, oh, Captain okay. America-based superhero. He's called American Eagle, and he transforms. Man, I'll tell you, I thought I was going to save the comics industry from itself. Like, <laughs> I really thought, like, this is going to single-handedly launch kids' comics. Right. It didn't really happen. But I was super lucky in that it did hit the New York Times bestseller list, like the first picture book right out the gate. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, and it's been since then, just been, I was working in picture books, which are great, but, you know, my heart has always been more in comics, and I've transitioned into more doing comics, which I think the bulk of my readership is definitely kids. I like to say they're all ages to whatever extent that means anything. They are definitely all ages, because it appealed to me, without a doubt, and obviously it's appealing to kids. So, so let me ask you, so the Olympian series is, it's it's a graphic novel, original graphic novel format. It's a, it's like, you know, the, for you people who have never seen them, they're like, the, you know, maybe what, 8 by eight by 10 and so, yeah. so in its graphic novel format, you called it a comic book, so do you consider it a comic book, not a graphic novel? Because I know a lot of people play distinctions with those terms. Oh man, I don't, right? Okay. Like I call them, I call them comics. I guess like I know, on the, I know, like I've heard you use you use the term floppy a lot. I don't like the phrase, but it's it's just kind of yeah, it's, it's getting out there. I think every single term we have to define what I'm going to call comics are is just not perfect. Graphic novels is great because it gets us in the schools, it gets us in libraries. 
it sounds more reputable than comics. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll call it the Olympians graphic novel series, but I call the, like, if I could be so hoity-toity, <laughs> I call the art form comics. Okay. That's, yeah. I, hey, that's a great way to put the, I mean, I want any way possible to get comics out there in the hands of kids, you know? And, yeah. and whether you call it graphic novel or comics or whatever, you know, I'd rather the phrase be out there with comics because it associates with I mean, Every Halloween, I get, you know, the Halloween giveaway comics and I hand those in kids' hands along with candy every Halloween. I want more kids reading them. So, in fact, folks, because you just said, you know, we all like old things. A lot of people listen to the show. I know you have kids. <laughs> so, we're all old. So, I know you've gone to the book fairs, the Scholastic Book Fairs and whatever with kids, with your kids yourself. I've been to a million of them. They have these books here. You have seen these books. You may not have realized what you were looking at at the time, but you've been around these books and there's a good chance your kids have read these folks. These things are huge. So, I uh, definitely track them down, folks. The Olympians. So, there's been 11 of them so far, right? Yeah, 11 out of 12. Yeah, Hephaestus, God of Fire just came out about, what, four or five months ago. So, what can you tell us about book 12? Book 12, to close out the series, is going to be Dionysus. So I'm going to be doing a book for kids about the god of getting drunk. I was just going to keep beating me to the joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, for if any of the kids out there who like, nobody knows Greek myths as well as kids do. So I just mm. like to throw this out for people who are interested. Uh, it's going to be narrated by the goddess Hestia, who was the first Olympian, telling the story of Dionysus, who was the last Olympian. Oh, wow. That's a yeah. great way to close it out. Yeah, it's going to really like tie Well, I'm rereading currently my whole series because it's weird when you read your book that you wrote yourself. You know? Oh, really? But it's been okay. a while. Yeah. It's sometimes you're like, wow, this is really good. And if you're not in a great mood, you're like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> and it's it feels like it's written by a creator you like and it's maybe not written by you because at least for me, I don't remember doing a lot of it. Well, you've been working on them, what, 10 years now, I think? Yeah, about that. Wow. So yeah, I could see yeah. why you get some distance from it. You know, anything you do creatively, you look back on it and you, you look at you right with different eyes. Yeah. And I like what you said about kids know Greek mythology better than anyone. I remember when I was, oh gosh, probably 10, 11 years old, my uncle, who was a history teacher in high school, he put in my hands a Greek mythology book. I don't remember which one it was now. You know, he's like, here, read this kid. And I just lived in those pages, man. And yeah. it just, it gets and sinks into your soul and you just, you can't help but love it. You know, a lot of it's connected with superheroes. We're going to talk about some of that later, but it's just, there's a huge passion for it. And I totally give it to me by kids know it better than anyone else. Yeah. It's something about that. And I think it's partially because the subject matter and the way those stories are told and the things that happen, it's like sex and murder and cannibalism and all this stuff that you really can't get in kids' books. It's true. And <laughs> at least you shouldn't be getting in kids' books. <laughs> but when it's part of this, like the classics, it's it just becomes acceptable. Right. Yeah. There's, it's, it's because it's so old that the, they don't put it on the band list. <laughs> now, yeah. yeah I talked, I've talked a little about school and kids and stuff like that. So one of the things I, I noticed on your website is you actually go out to schools and you talk to kids about this stuff. That is so freaking cool. Like, tell me about a little bit about that, because I'm just curious. I'll go out during the school year. Mm -hmm. I make north of, like, 50 school visits a year. Wow. I, I come into classrooms or auditoriums more often, and I have a slide presentation kind of talking about making comics and how I got into comics, and kind of going over just Greek mythology. So it's this educational, but very silly. Like, <laughs> I do it very irreverently. I think, you know, fans of the JLI would approve. Like, there's a lot of weird <laughs> jokes and stuff. So what's the target? target age that you're talking to? I speak to as young as, man, I've been, this year I spoke to first graders about it. My my sweet spot is like, I'd say between third and seventh. Okay. But I speak up through like high school pretty regularly. That's it's awesome. the best comics. A lot of the comics we grew up reading, stuff like JLI, that was written for like all ages. Mm -hmm. There was no attempts to dumb things down, but they just didn't have like overtly adult references that would be inappropriate. Yeah. And that that's kind of how I treat my comics. And I think 
like some of the best, you know, quote unquote, kids comics out there do that. Like, you know, if you read, I don't know, like a, uh, maybe this isn't a good example, but I think it is like Scooby-Doo Team Up, I think yeah. is a super fun kids comic that appeals to all ages. It's exceptionally, it, it's, it's fun and for everyone around, but it doesn't really talk down to you. Whereas there's a lot of other kid comics out there where like, you know, my daughter's bought a lot over the years and I'm like, oh honey, I, I can't even read this thing to you. You know, it's it's, it's just too dumb. So uh, yeah, I think, <laughs> there's, there's something about not treating a kid like a kid, you know, trust them to to get it, to understand more than what they're, you know, the parents expect them to. Yeah, man. I meet way more like impressively intelligent kids than I do adults. <laughs> kind of, it's either sad that like those kids just kind of like lose it at some point, or maybe it's like super optimistic that we're all getting smarter as a people and like in 10 years, like a much better group of people will be in charge. That would be nice. That would be very nice. Yeah, here's hoping. <laughs> well, I know I used to manage a comic book shop. I did it for four years when I was in college. And most of my favorite experiences there were tied up with talking with kids where a kid comes in is either looking for a comic or telling you why they like this comic and just seeing the joy that it brought to their faces. It's just, uh, or the, you know, it's, that's where my passion came from in, in that. Yeah. I just, I'm completely envious that you get out there and talk to the kids. I think it's phenomenal. It's awesome. It's definitely a real bonus to like this career. Something I didn't really realize going in. I'm like, I just want to make, tell these stories, mm-hmm. but then getting out there and just getting to like meet these people and like, like see the difference. Like I've been doing it long enough at my last few signings. I've had kids in their twenties showing up who are like, I've grown up reading your comics. Oh, that's amazing. That's so cool. It's yeah. And it, at first you're kind of like, Oh, I feel so old. But then you're like, no, this is awesome. These like, this made enough of a difference that this person still as an adult is following my stuff and comes out. And to say that that's great. Dude, I can't, I can't imagine a better compliment than someone who's yeah. been following your work that long. That's amazing. So, all right. So we've talked about the 10 years now you've been on this. The next book, about that. the next book is the last book in the series. So what can the world expect next from George O'Connor after the Olympians? Well, first I thought I would take a break from mythology, but you know, I'd be a fool to walk away from this. And <laughs> I still have a lot more to tell. So uh, I'm going to be doing a four book series, not the 12 book of Olympians called um, As Guardians. Oh, no way. Yeah, man. And my whole, I don't know if I'll get into this later, I probably will, but my big entree into superhero comics was through Walt Simonson's Thor. Well, okay, sure, why not? I mean, that's a pretty darn good place to get in, especially for mythology Right? Yeah, and that was the thing. I was a big mythology kid, and I was reading like the Simonson Thor, and I remember not knowing what to make of his artwork, being like, I either love this or hate this. <laughs> and I eventually came down on the side of love. But like, you know, he was dealing with like it was just as I was starting to read Norse mythology, and he was dealing with those same issues. Like, you know, I, the first issue I picked up was uh, it was the one with Fafnir of the Dragon on it. Okay, you know, he's like fighting in the city, and just like it was so incredible to me. So for me, like comics and by extension superheroes have always been. So so entwined with mythology. And now I'm going to get to do my own spin on, you know, Norse mythology. So will it be book two or three that's going to be entitled Frog Thor? Just curious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'll get to steer clear of that for fear of being sued by Marvel. I think that's it's probably, be, uh, probably for the best. <laughs> this is going to be the mythologically accurate Thor. He's right. going to have red hair. He's going to be ugly. Loki's his uncle, not his brother. All the stuff that's different that, you know, Stanley and Jack Kirby changed because they probably hadn't actually read mythology in a few years. Right. This is going to be like the more educational version. So, you know, that's a question too. So I know um, from reading uh, Zeus and reading some of the background on it, you don't just 
take off the shelf, you know, uh, the, the most common version of mythology. You're out there researching the oldest possible text. Where are you finding this stuff? Uh, it's kind of everywhere. The amount of stuff that's out there in terms of Greek mythology, it's, it's amazing. Like, I feel like I could be doing this the rest of my life and I will still be discovering what to me are new myths, but of course are thousands of years old. There's just so many versions recorded and I'll just read every single thing I could... I, I'd take a couple months to read every single myth I could find that is connected to the goddess or god I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. And just eventually by just doing deep dives, reading the notes and following up in those notes and other books, I'll find like some really weird versions that haven't been reported or I mean clearly recorded if I'm reading them, but just aren't part of the standard grouping of myths that people are familiar with. Well, it certainly adds a lot to it. I mean, I was reading the Zeus one knowing in advance that you had done your research. So I'm like, wow, I didn't even know about this aspect of the story and uh, just found out a lot of different things about Zeus I didn't realize. So it teaches kids that there's more to the myths than they may have heard. So I'm very impressed by it. Speaking of which, I want to take a second to pimp your book, in fact. So we're going to jump to our in-stock trades recommendation. Folks, this episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we pick a book from the InStockTrades library that's related. I have picked one of your books, sir. Uh, I want people to go out to InStockTrades and pick up Olympian's graphic novel, Volume 11, Hephaestus God of Fire. It's out there right now. It's all done by George. It's 80 pages. It's gorgeous. It's in this series. Now, it's fair to say that someone could pick up Hephaestus without reading the other ones is that fair absolutely it's a modular series you should uh read it whatever goddess or god is your favorite and you should be able to read it no problem it's like how stanley says every comic is somebody's first you can read every olympians in any order you want awesome well normally it would cost you ten dollars and 99 cents on in stock trades it's only eight dollars and 24 cents right now that's 25 percent off it's practically a steal go out there folks and pick this up support george and find out a little bit more about this olympian series because it's so stinking good so i'm really really enjoying it now george this is the part of the show where i ask the guest if they happen to have brought a recommendation. It, there's no expectation that you have to. I mean, you are New York Times bestselling author. I would expect you had done uh-huh. your homework in advance, but whatever. Maybe you didn't. Uh, any chance you brought one? I did, as a matter of fact. Oh, no. All right. What you got? Actually, this one has a pretty cool JLI connection. Okay. My good buddy, one of my best friends, Mike Cavallaro, has a new book. It just came out this week Ooh. called Impossible Incorporated. Okay. And what makes this pretty awesome is the author of this is Mr. J.M. DeMatteis. No stinking way. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it's this amazing book. It's about this 17-year-old girl named Number Horowitz, and she's the daughter of this kind of legendary genius adventurer. Like, think of like a Reed Richards type, sort of, without stretchiness, <laughs> uh, named Goliath Horowitz. Okay. It's this crazy cosmic adventure. Like, they go on this subway train that is called the Non-Local Express that actually lets them move throughout all dimensions and anywhere in the universe. Oh, And wow. they go on this journey to find her missing father. And when you see this artwork... so. Mike is this incredible draftsman and you know the Celestials from like the Eternal series? Sure, sure. It's like filled with like all this Kirby-esque imagery. There's these characters that resembles the Celestials. Mike also colored it and he's an insane colorist. Like this is just, it's this candy-colored, trippy, crazy book. And it's also, you know, just going from my general theme, it's good for all ages. Okay. It's Dematteis. Like, you know, first off, that dude can write. Yeah. And like... 
It's him like cranking out crazy story ideas, Mike drawing all this stuff, all of it coming together, and it's being done for like this is something you could put in the hands of your teenager. That's I'm, I'm looking at the cover right now. I see totally what you mean about the cosmic stuff and the colors. It looks absolutely bonkers, Kirby. You know, uh, it, it, like you said, Celestials or Fantastic Four or Doctor Strange, something crazy yeah. and spacey going on. This is awesome. Yeah, it, it's an incredible book, and it's put together so beautifully. They've worked together before. Uh, they did another series called The Life and Times of Savior Twenty Eight. Oh, yeah. Which was okay. kind of, yeah, it was based on Diamatteis's like aborted Captain America plot. But this is something all new that they just created together, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Awesome. Well, I see it on In Stock Trades right now. Normally retails for $12.99. You can get it 30% off on In Stock Trades right now. It's only $9.09. That's awesome. What a great pick. Yeah. And especially because it came out like two days ago. So, so very timely. <laughs> All right, folks, for these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, if you want to comment on these issues of Justice League America or Justice League Europe, or you want to talk about the Olympians, or if you want to tell us how much you love Impossible Incorporated, go out on the social medias, use the hashtag PoundFWPodcast, or tag us at JLI Podcast. We're out there on Facebook and Twitter and all this stuff. I mean, because this, this is really about building a community of online JLI fans and supporting creative efforts. So get out there, shout from the rooftops, folks. We want you to be part of this show. Now, George, you've hinted at a little bit. I've been dying to hear this. I need to know your personal origin story with the Justice League uh, or Justice League International, either one. How did you fall in love with it? How did you discover the book? Where's your passion come from with this? Okay. It's, I mean, it's not a super unique story, but I mentioned before I got into superhero comics reading uh, The Mighty Thor by Walt Simonson. So initially, I was a bit of a Marvel head only, and I discovered my local comic shop in those years, which was, I grew up in Long Island, New York. It was a comic shop called Fourth World Comics. Nice. And I I remember just coming in there, which, yeah, it's pretty cool. And I remember coming in one day and seeing the poster of Justice League International number one. Mm. They had, like, a little promotional poster. And I really, I mean, aside from, like, you know, Captain Marvel and Batman, I didn't really know these characters. Mm -hmm. But that image was just like, I'm like, I love this. I've always been really drawn to, like, groupings of, like, you know, multicolored characters. Like, you know, all the different bright superheroes put together. Sure. Like, I love looking, I loved looking old, like, issues of Avengers where they had to settle these crazy costumes <laughs> or like the, I was really into like the Legion of Superheroes for the exact same reason and I saw this and I remember specifically like thinking like Blue Beetle looked really awesome I'm like that guy's costume is great and then the guy with the golden face you know Dr. Fate I'm like <gasps> these characters look awesome so when that book came out I bought it and I loved it I'm a goofy guy I'm not like a grim and gritty guy and like that book was like it was so perfect for my sensibilities I know the exact post you're talking about it's framed on my wall I'm looking at it right now it's, it's stunning oh. it's powerful it just grabs you. That cover, that image is so iconic. And it really, for me, it just worked. It was just like knowing absolutely nothing about these characters. I just was like, I'm going to buy that book because, the, and also, like, I just love the typeface. Mm -hmm. The whole production put together, just something about that grabbed me at that young age. I'm just like, yes, you're going to read this book. And so, was it instant love or did it take a while? What connected you to the book? Man, it was pretty much instant love. There was, I didn't get to the comic shop as regular as I could have back in the days. So, mm -hmm. I would sometimes miss, miss an issue here and there. And whenever there was a fill in issue, it would kind of break my heart. <laughs> sure. But, you know, like, and seeing like McGuire grow as an artist. To this day, one of the things I most value in a comics artist is somebody who can really nail faces. Oh. And of course, that's his whole thing. Absolutely. You know, I was just beginning to figure out inkers, but Terry Austin, like, I loved his inks in those first issues. Or maybe it's just the first one. Just, I loved it. Like, this, I remember the second issue was being like a little, I was a little bit not as in love with it, because it was just, you 
know, we're getting into the storyline. I didn't know who any of those characters were. Sure. And I definitely didn't pick up that they were making, they were supposed to be like Thor and so, uh, <laughs> right. Scarlet Witch. I just, I was very slow in picking up those references. By the end of the, you know, the first JLI period when it becomes Justice League America, mm-hmm. by that point, that was probably my favorite comic. That's fantastic. All right. So you're obviously a comics guy. We've talked about Thor. We've talked about your love there. We've talked about your love of Justice League. So and I started thinking about what's your influences when you're producing your own comics and, and, and children's picture books. So like, do you have different comics that influence your different works? Like, is there different things that inspire you when you work on Olympians versus working on Captain Awesome? Which I don't even know if we mentioned Captain Awesome earlier, which is a, a picture book no, that you illustrated. Yeah. So Captain Awesome is a, it's a series I do with Simon and Schuster where it's a little boy who pretends to be a superhero, just like that first book I mentioned. Kapow. And written, um, by the way, by a guy named Stan Kirby. Really? <laughs> no, that's total suited. <laughs> okay. It's the best suited ever. <laughs> I know, right? Well, actually, a cool thing is there's a lot of little tiny supporting characters in that book, and they're all named after famous comic book artists and writers. Oh, that's so cool. That's so And like, there's, a, there's like a little girl who looks like Thor, and her name is Olivier Simonson. Oh! Um, yeah, there's a little guy who looks like Peter Parker, as drawn by Steve Ditko, and he's Gil Ditko. Oh. Um, Stan Kirby Jr. looks like Stan Lee. Uh, he's actually a character. There's all these little references to it. There's Alice Moore, who looks like Alan Moore. Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. <laughs> so, going, going back to the question, I totally digressed. I'm so sorry. So, do you, do you, is there different comics that influence you when you work on something like Olympians versus something like Captain Awesome? Is it, are, What are you drawing from? And I don't mean literally drawing, but what, what energy are you pulling from to get the inspirations for these. Yeah, before I was into comic books, I was into comic strips and comic strips like Calvin and Hobbes, Bill Watterson. Mm. So what, what I'm doing, my more cartoony stuff, which I'll count something like Captain Awesome, or I also illustrate a spin-off series of that called Super Turbo. I'm definitely pulling on my Bill Watterson chops. That's awesome. That's awesome. He was the first artist that I loved as a kid. And then, um, you know, when I do Olympians, which is a little bit more, uh, I'll say for lack of a better term, traditional American comic style, mm-hmm. definitely pulling on Simonson. I feel like P. Craig Russell's one of the really big obvious influences in there. I, you know, now that you I, say it, I feel like I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it gets a little bit more pronounced as the series goes along. Okay. In the first, in the first volume, Zeus, at that point, I feel like I'm really channeling Mike Mignola pretty heavily. Mm, okay. Like, there's these people, you know, I'm not doing it consciously, but the people whose works I'm most eagerly devouring. Yeah, it makes perfect and, sense. And because I write them too, like I feel like the writing style show. Like I feel like there's a lot of Neil Gaiman in my writing. I feel like there's a lot of, um, and that's not saying I'm as good as Neil Gaiman. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of Simonson. The way that they treated these giant mythological themes has really influenced the way that I do so with Olympians. I can definitely see some of the influences you're talking about there. I, and, and as far as Calvin and Hobbes go, man, I just got to echo. Just I don't know if I've ever really talked about it on the air. Tremendous Calvin and Hobbes fan. When I was a little kid, I went and stayed with my father and stepmother. In in Wisconsin and Calvin Hobbes wasn't in my local newspaper and I, I went in back then they had all their newspapers stacked up in the garage I spent the whole summer in their garage <laughs> just fi- looking through every old edition of the paper to find Calvin Hobbes and I cut all of them out and took them with me and then my stepmother would mail me these packages she would cut Calvin Hobbes out of the daily paper and, and put together like a month at a time and mail them to me and I would tape them down in this book and I have the book in the attic somewhere like long before they were printing the volumes and I actually have my Calvin Hobbes books on my bookshelf right next to all my comic graphic novels but close 
close enough that I can reach it whenever I'm sitting at my desk. That's I, I just I, Wait, to this day I think they're phenomenal. Do you have the original ones that you clipped still? Uh, those are the ones that are in the attic. The ones I clipped are up in the attic. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. You, neither one of us are unique in that it spoke to us. I think it spoke to any comic book fan. But man, just love that series so much. Oh. It's the best comic strip that was ever made. I think. I, I don't feel like I'm authoritative to say that, but that's certainly what I feel like. Absolutely. I'm not authoritative to say it either, but I'll say it recklessly. You're a New York Times published author, sir. You can say that if you want. All right. So I'm going to hit you with a question here. Superheroes are obviously uh, our modern mythology. I mean, look, I mean, billion dollar movies in the box office. We've got comics. We've got tomes of these things going on now for 50 years, you know, 80 years with some of them. You know, Grant Morrison made a point of comparing his JLA to the Greek pantheon. What do you see in the JLI in regard to mythology? What do you see any connections between mythology and the Just League International books? Man, that's a great question. There, what, what Morrison did when he did his big, you know, he, he tried to match them to the Pantheon of the Twelve, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but it kind of, it really removed us from them. Like, they, they were literally, like, gods looking down at us. They were, like, on a watchtower on the moon. Right. They were so away and separate, and everything they did was momentous. I remember there was that one bit where, like, Superman is wrestling an angel, and even the Flash is like, I can't believe I'm watching Superman wrestle an angel. <laughs> Whereas the JLI, it's all about making them seem so human that I, I don't feel like it really owes that much to mythology. It, it, except for when when you do read old myths there will be these amazing little human touches okay that have just survived like just the way like a turn of a phrase or like a, a particular description of the way a character runs or something and then you realize even though this was written thousands of years ago they're really capturing this human moment and for me whenever i think of jli it's always those human moments okay some of my, my favorite scenes my favorite issues are like the characters won't even be suited up or if they are suited up they're not going out and finding crime right you know, they're hanging around the embassy. They're like, you know, complaining about being on watch duty. It's just, yeah, I feel like it's not really, because most of the characters, they're just, they are just very human. The, the closest I could come, because I tried to think of this stuff myself, and I was like, no, I'll ask an expert instead, and clearly you failed me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I, the only thing I could come up with is, you know, the dysfunctional family aspect. JLI oh. is definitely a d- dysfunctional family, and as I've heard you talk before about uh, the, the Greek pantheon, they're a very dysfunctional family as well. But beyond that, I couldn't really draw any other analogies. That's a really good point, because that's something that really makes Greek mythology unique is it's, you know, they are a dysfunctional family. They fight. And like, that's the interest. It's the, it's the character interaction. So in that aspect, yeah, I'm actually going to say that you were totally right in this one. I will take that in the win column, well sir. Well done, sir. <laughs> and there's actually something in this issue that makes me think about that because Guy Gardner at this point in the series, and we'll touch on in a minute here, is he's starting to think of the JLI as his family. And, uh, and, yeah. and I think that's, that's sort of connected to it. Well, you know what? We, we've mentioned the comic. We should probably get into it because I think everyone wants to hear about this issue because this is a big one. In fact, you talked about those human moments. This is this storyline with Blue Beetle is one of the hum- most human moments in the series. I think everyone remembers when they think about JLA. Yeah. Like, oh, that's the that's when it stopped being a funny book and started breaking my heart. I love it. Yeah. All right, folks. So uh, we're going to talk about Justice League America number twenty-seven. If you want to see some of the images from this issue, go out to our website, which is FirewaterPodcast.com/jli. We'll post a few of the images out there. I'm not going to do a ton of them because you can. I mean, goodness, you can get this book anywhere. You can find it in the back issue bins. You can find it digitally on Comixology. You can find it in the new DC Universe app. It's all over the place. So if you don't have a copy of this, really, it's your own fault and you should be ashamed. All right. Justice League America number 27 was published by DC Comics. The cover date was June 1989. It was on the shelves April 11th, 1989. And 
if you think about it, only two months away from the release of the 1989 Batman movie. Oh my gosh. Whoa. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. And the cover price was 75 cents, so three shiny quarters. The cover is by Kevin McGuire. We're pretty sure about that. Um, <laughs> I did a little research and I kept finding conflicting sources. One website said it was Ty Templeton who did the cover. Another site said it was Kevin McGuire and Joseph Rubenstein together. I'm not entirely sure because there's no signature here. I feel pretty comfortable saying that this is pure McGuire because I feel like, and this is maybe totally apocryphal, and I'm sure somebody out there will be able to correct me, I feel like I've read an interview where Kevin McGuire complains about doing the pointillism. <laughs> well, why don't you describe the cover to the folks at home about it? Okay, well, there's a really easy way to do this if you've ever seen the movie poster to the movie The Exorcist. This is the cover. Now, I didn't realize that when I first read this. I just thought it was this amazing atmospheric cover. It's the silhouetted figure of Amanda Waller standing before the New York Embassy, and it's it's like I mentioned up front, it's pointillism. Oh. It's there there's some solid fields of black, but it's all this atmospheric sense of depth as she's illuminated by a streetlight as she walks up to the embassy. It's all done in these barely there dots, and it's incredible. And on top of it, they changed the logo for this one issue to this, like, blood-red Justice League America that I guess is evocative of the Exorcist typeface, but I didn't do my homework and look it up. I'm looking at it right now. It is evocative of that, yes. But man, it looks classy and amazing. I remember as a kid seeing this and being like, I love this so much. Oh, the cover is, it's stunning. I mean, the point, like you said, the point, I've done a little bit of pointillism when I was like, you know, in art class and stuff like that. It is amazing when it comes out right. It's insanity creating when you do it. And it's so frustrating. And this is beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. And looking at it, the Exorcist poster right next to it, side by side, it's stunning. It's absolutely amazing. And then once you know what it is, it's freaking hilarious at the same time. It just works on so many levels. It's so good. I just love this issue. I'm just going to say that a lot, everybody. I just love this issue. <laughs> That's actually all his commentary is going to be. In his notes, he just wrote, I love this issue. I love this issue. And he just repeated like eight times. But okay, whatever. All right. So plot and breakdowns by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus. Penciler is Ty Templeton. Inker is Joe Rubenstein. And Dick Giordano, that's some serious cred right there. Uh, yeah. Letter is Bob LePan, colors Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, and editor Andy Helfer, and is listed he is in need of deprogramming. So um, <laughs> why don't you take the first half of this issue, George? Okay. So we uh, we open up in Belle Reef Prison, which is, of course, the home of the famous Suicide Squad. And we join it where uh, Suicide Squad supporting member Murphy is kind of cringeworthily introducing our beloved Oberon to great Amanda Waller calling him a midget, which, you know, I just want to say the 80s are a different time. Well, uh, I, I'm going to interrupt then, just for since you brought it up. It's very interesting that everyone is really insensitive to each other, but almost like in a, like a, hey, I'm doing this on purpose. Come at me, bro, kind of way. Yeah. So it almost works in a way. Well, it totally works because they kind of go into this verbal sparring and Oberon kind of apologizes. He's like, the jail, I need you. And like, I'm sorry I was being a jerk. And Amanda, who's one of my favorite characters, she's like, why'd you have to go and apologize? I was just being a like yet. <laughs> And it's just like, it's like, yes. And we cut to the New York Embassy where Batman is interviewing the previously brainwashed Blue Beetle. And what we learn is Max's room. And we're just kind of, there's some really amazingly done uh, exposition here between both Beetle and Batman's conversation. And then Max and John in the hall. Where we're kind of filled in on the events, which uh, I'm assuming loyal listeners have already heard. But basically, Blue Beetle was brainwashed and went nuts and tried to kill Maxwell Lord. And then we cut from there. We go to a nearby diner where both Booster and Ice are fretting about their best friends. 
from previous issues. It's a great little scene just to kind of check in with the rest of the staff Mm -hmm. before we rejoin back at the embassy where there's this amazing, I wouldn't even call it a verbal showdown, but like just a kind of measuring contest between Amanda Waller and Batman. (laughs) My favorite comics Batman is Justice League International Batman. And even then, probably more so as drawn by Ty Templeton. This is like my favorite Batman. And to see Amanda Waller is his equal. It's just such an amazing scene. And then we cut to Beetle, who's really just beating himself up. He's agonizing out loud, kind of doing a comic book monologue, saying about like, you know, what's going on with me? Why did I do this terrible thing? As Amanda walks in and begins the planned de-brainwashing of him. We have that cut to that scene of uh, Guy Gardner dealing with a litter bug, but also a little bit of revealing character uh, insight into him as we're beginning to see a little bit was continued from the past issue where Guy is really having legit feelings for these people. After being kind of a cretin and then like kind of a brain damaged person, he's returned to himself, but we see that he is changed. He's growing to become a member of this family. Then we have the first part of the interrogation between Blue Beetle and Amanda Waller, where she kind of boneheadedly, I have to say, she says his trigger word, which is Bialia, my Bialia. And immediately he changes. His body language is completely different. He attacks Amanda Waller, brutally backhands her, but because she's Amanda Waller, she's a middle-aged overweight woman, she beats up Blue Beetle. That would normally be upset, but because it's Amanda Waller, it makes total sense to me. Oh, it totally works. He only gets in two hits. She gets in three, and they're hardcore. She puts him on the ground. That's how awesome the wall is. Yeah, what? Knockout punch. One punch. <laughs> All right. I'll take it from here. Uh, we catch up with Waller as she's yelling at Max and John. She is furious that Blue Beetle's programming was still primed, but in the end, she ends up blaming herself. She realizes that she should have known better. She explains that she's going to try regressive hypnosis on Beetle, but there are risks. The Queen Bee may have set up fail-safes in Beetle's mind. Meanwhile, we check in on our other teammates, or subplots of the week, whatever you want to call it. We find Mr. Miracle at home in New Hampshire with Big Barda. Scott can't quite explain it, but he's got a bad feeling. Back at the embassy, we find out a little more about Fire's strange new condition. While she and Oberon do some heavy-duty flirting, that guy's got game. Um, then, Seriously. Then with Waller, the hypnosis is successful at first, and Beetle relives being back in Bialya with Booster. He recalls being knocked out by sleeping gas and awakening as a captive of Queen Bee and Jack O'Lantern. Before Waller can learn too much, though, Beetle's mind shuts down. He begins convulsing and falls into a coma. As Beetle's taken to the hospital, Waller blames herself for failing and Beetle's condition. Batman at this point is almost compassionate, sort of, and he leaves to seek out the one man who might be able to help, Dr. Fate's magical advisor, Naboo, now called Kent Nelson. That's where the issue ends. It's in the next issue box. It says, we'll find out about Kent Nelson's part in all this two issues from now. But next, Guy Gardner and Ice Maiden, A Night on the Town, which, of course, is the infamous date issue, uh, which is going to be a blast to cover right in the middle of this heavy-duty storyline. But, wow, what an issue. All right, first thing is the cover. I should have mentioned this a while ago. So the Exorcist at this point is only 16 years old. That's amazing to think of, because now you think of it as, you know, it's a super classic cult film, right? Well, at that point, it was only 16 years old, so it was obviously already a classic. So then I started thinking, all right, we're sitting here in 2019. What's 16 years ago? That's 2003. What kind of cult classics do we have from, t- um, from 2003? Well, I don't see any comics homaging Bruce Almighty or Will Ferrell's Elf anytime soon. <laughs> so I, I got to think some of the older movies might have a little more power. God, 16 years. And it, seemed, it was already a classic. And a movie I was absolutely terrified to watch at that point. Oh, I ter- like, dude, the, the, the pea soup and the head spinning still terrifies me. When I was a kid, I turned on the TV once just in time to to see Regan's head spinning around, and I was like, nope, never watched this movie. <laughs> 
I probably didn't see that thing until like the early 2000s, at which point I'm like, oh, that looks fake. That's called the Nope Channel. <laughs> now, you, you talked about Amanda Waller and Oberon and the, you're right, the insensitivity of like it wouldn't fly in comics nowadays. Again, I sort of stand by that like, I kind of like it for that very reason. And well, I would pay. They call it out. Yeah, yeah exactly. It works perfectly because they do. Yeah, I mean, she calls him a midget. He calls her a fat black broad. I mean, it's, they're thrown at each other's faces and they sort of love it. So I would pay real money to read an entire comic of just Amanda Waller and Oberon sniping at one another. That would be awesome. I would love that. One of the reasons I've always loved Amanda Waller is because she doesn't fit like the super heroic archetype. Exactly. She's not some statuesque, like muscular, beautiful, like bodacious woman. She looks like people you would see every day. And then you throw an Oberon there who's like a literal dwarf. And these two characters, and with this other guy, Murph, who like, he's the one who actually starts throwing around the word midget. Like, like come on, Murph, have some respect. But like, he's just a normal schlub. It was just a really amazing scene to see. Like, nobody in this page is a superhero. And, and Ty Templeton, by the way, I, all credit to him. I mean, this really looks like echoes of, like, Luke McDonald's stuff on Suicide Squad in Amanda. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing it throughout here. Can I talk a little bit about Ty Templeton here? Yes, you pl- yeah, please do. One of the things about this issue is pretty much, I mean, there's a few, there's quite a few cutaways, and there's a few other rooms featured. Almost the entirety of this entire issue takes place in an empty room, the same empty room of the embassy. Mm. All the conflicts between Beetle and Amanda and all this stuff it takes place in this one room and the staging of this is incredible this is not a boring looking book right I don't know if we commend if this is Giffen because I know he does the breakdown method where he would draw like the roughs and people worked off that or if this is just Ty Templeton being a master this comic it's incredible what they do and like that room like we feel like we're in that room it's just incredible I didn't even think about all of that until you mentioned it but you're absolutely right. That room is a living, breathing thing, and you can feel it. And part of it is the starkness of it. It makes you feel lonely for Beetle. It's sad. And then when it gets horrific, it suddenly feels claustrophobic and trapping. Yeah. It's just amazing. And like, so Templeton, right? So I I spoke up front about how important Maguire was for me. Mm -hmm. And when he left the book, there was, you know, there was different fill-ins and such. And I was kind of, I, I didn't know what to make of Templeton at first. And it was just me being a kid and some of the stuff, like there was, he made a few like weird what I would consider stylistically odd choices okay. like the first story I remember him doing was it's the first reveal of Max's powers mm-hmm. Yeah, this is such a thing that a kid would get upset about like he would draw beetles you couldn't see beetles eyes all the way through the goggles right. you saw the shape of his eyeballs and I, I just remember being like I don't like this and I was <laughs> like am I not going to like this series but by the time he gets here I remember being like this guy is incredible the, the minimalist amount of lines he uses to convey what he wants to, it just works. It's just amazing. It's like that Wally Wood sheet where it's like, you know, the different panels that work every time. Mm. You could show this. Like, there's so – it's this entire issue for the most part is people talking to each other. And he does it differently every time and it always looks amazing. And it's such a visually interesting and satisfying book. The, t- the face we see for Ted Cord here, mm-hmm. who we really hadn't seen unmasked too much up until now. He's little bits here and there when he's undercover. This is like – like, in my mental image, this is Ted Cord. This is what he looks like. Like, this issue is so important. You know, there's an interesting thing there with with names I wanted to bring up, too, because he doesn't actually get called Ted. He gets called a Blue Beetle throughout almost the entire issue. The only person that referred to him as Ted Cord, it's, it's either uh, the Queen Bee 
or, or Jacqueline, I don't remember which, but it's the bad guys in the flashback. Everyone else calls him. Yeah. Boomer. In fact, there's a whole lot of code names in this thing. Even, uh, and it starts really on page five with Booster and Ice in the diner. They're in completely civilian clothes and they're not calling each other Michael and, and Tora. No, it's everything is Booster, Beetle, Ice, Fire. The only one who gets called by their real name is Martian Manhunter. He gets John, he gets called John. Everyone else is <laughs> by the name. He's always John. That's really amazing. And I don't know if, if that's done un- intentionally to help the kids reading the comic or but it's, I wouldn't think so I mean Maxwell Lord's Max Oberon's Oberon you know Waller's Waller so I mean I don't see why real names would be a problem for it but uh, it's, it's sort of interesting I mean it makes sense they're friends and like that's their nicknames right yeah like they call him Beetle because that's just he's Beetle I mean I wasn't reading the solo Booster Gold series okay. I really thought his name was Booster Gold <laughs> reading this book you would think that yeah yeah I, have they, I mean do they ever in the entire run mention his name is John Michael Carter? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I feel like that maybe comes up in like the I can't believe it's not the Justice Leagues maybe once, but I, I think he's just always Booster. And, and it goes to the argument sort of too is like, is the costume who you really are? And, you know, sort of thing with, you know, Batman, is he really Batman? And Bruce Wayne's the identity, the secret, you know, the, the costume or, you know, things like that. So it sort of fits with that sort of discussion. Now, as someone uh, with a pedigree in art, I'm going to put you on the spot here. We've got two inkers in this issue, Joe Rubenstein <laughs> and Dick Giordano. I'm not 100% sure who did which pages. I've got some suspicions on some. You got any thoughts on that? Oh, man, do I? Okay. All right. Awesome. Now, here's the thing about me, right? Man, how do I put this delicately? I have a thing with Joe Rubenstein. Okay. Not a personal thing. Just somebody, I grew up reading his stuff. He was he was ubiquitous, and I started noticing some tells of his that really jump out at oh, me. Okay, and it's this thing every cartoonist does. This. We have certain shortcuts we do automatically. It's what makes our styles. Mm-hmm. But the thing that kind of bugs me, going back to what I was saying, like about Maguire, for instance, like facial features are super important to me. And Rubenstein has a couple of ticks visually that he works like where he will redraw faces in his style kind of automatically. Hmm. Okay, and I get it. He was a he was a fast cartoonist. He was a super Super solid cartoonist, but he was often brought in, like, you know, against tight deadlines. And I think sometimes he was maybe working with looser pencils. And normally I could pick out a Rubenstein panel from a mile away, but because Ty Templeton is such an exceptional draftsperson and because he's so solid, I have a little bit of a harder time here, but I have identified what I, I'm pretty sure are three examples okay. of definite Rubenstein pages. Okay, on page four, which is bit where it is John and Maxwell Lord speaking speaking in the hallway outside of the room. Yeah. That, I'm pretty sure, is inked by Rubenstein. Really? Oh, that's so funny. That's the page I thought might be Dick Giordano. <laughs> you t- Interesting. Okay. Well, you tell me your reasons. All right. It's panel three, man. Look at Max's face. Yeah, it looks very at- JLI. It's the way the mouth is open and the lips are slightly pursed. To me, looks super duper Rubenstein. Okay. And I'm going to use this again because we're going to turn the page to the scene of Booster and Ice at the diner. Mm-hmm. Look at panel five. And that face of Booster, see how it looks almost a little off-model compared to the face right before it? Yeah. Like, that is a complete Rubenstein face. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I, the only reason I was leaning towards Giordano in the previous page is looking at Martian Manhunter and looking yeah. at sort of... And, and I'm not besmirching Rubenstein at all, by any means. But Giordano, one of the most amazing inkers in the business. I mean, no denying that. And the ink work yeah. on this particular page just blew me away. It's just... It's so clean. It's minimal. Again, the black look perfect. The, the Martian Manhunter's face just looks great. I was just looking at this and like, you know, this looks to have a little more polish than I usually see in a JLI page. I was thinking that might be Dick Giordano, but you're 
yeah, you now obviously that you have the better it, eye, so I get it. No, because like that's one of the things. Like like Rubenstein's a bit rougher. Giordano is super smooth, and I look at that. I could see what you're talking about. I don't know. I think we're going to agree on a page in a minute here. So let, let's keep going. What else you got? Okay, I'm not actually sure of the page number. The page that I think we're going to agree on is the shot of when we're look we're visiting with Scott and Barda at home. That is not the page I was thinking of. That's definitely a Rubenstein page. You could tell looking at panel five again. Barda's face. She looks like that's a very that's a Rubenstein face. Yeah. Like, you just picture that being that's like that could be Mary Jane Watson, Ron Friends from Spider Man, inked by Rubenstein at the same time. <laughs> I can see that absolutely. Okay, and I'm pretty sure looking at this pretty carefully, I think any page with Batman on it is Giordano. Okay, I was thinking the 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 very last panel of the book is is Batman. He's got sort of a he's actually smirking. He looks actually very oh. much like a Silver Age or, or Bronze Age uh, yes. stock art Batman. It looks like something almost like it's just this. It's like a sliver of his face, guys. You see his eye in the corner of his mouth. It looks like something from maybe a Super Friends or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Sort of like uh, <laughs> stock art or something. But it looks like the friendly Batman, and that struck me as like oh, that looks kind of Giordano-ish. Yeah, I think I think Giordano grabbed the Batman pages, and I think the Guy Gardner page is Giordano because it looks unlike anything else in this book. It does not look like typical JLI at all. If you look at Guy's face, at least to me, that doesn't look like anything I've seen in a JLI comic. Especially in that last panel there, right? That one face or the one, the more rendered one. Yeah. So that's my instinct. Um, so either way. So, okay. So we've had a little bit of fun here, folks. You look at your issue too. Let us know in your comments which ones you think might be Dick Giordano and which ones you might think are Rubenstein because uh, it's it's a bit of a mystery. It's a bit of a puzzle. It's fun. Yeah. I would love for people to weigh on this and maybe if Mr. Joseph Rubenstein listening like he could be like no nah, not nah, kid you're wrong <laughs> See, I, I, there's a couple things that Dimatteis puts in this issue that I love are sort of callbacks to the bigger universe, which you don't see a lot in JLI. A lot of times JLI is very insular. It's about that story, and it doesn't connect to the bigger DC universe. Not in a bad way, but it just it, it keeps you in the family there. But here, he does a lot of callbacks with Martian Manhunter. He mentions um, the danger of unearthing repressed memories, which is a callback mm-hmm. to Dimatteis' own um, uh, Martian Manhunter miniseries. You get, let's see, Waller, as you said, measuring contest, which was great. The ultimate callback, which has nothing to do JLI. Batman sort of saying, I don't even know why we need you, Waller, with uh, with the deprogramming. And Waller says, oh yeah, you're really experienced at deprogramming, ain't you? So tell me, how's your old friend Deacon Blackthorn doing? Oh my god! What a dig! Because if you've read The Cult, which just came out, I think, the year before, or even a few months before, those of you may not have ever read it, Deacon Blackfire actually broke the Batman. That's what the whole story was, is somebody broke Batman through brainwashing. And so her calling him out on that is huge! I, it just blew me away, and I, I actually laughed quite heartily when I got to that point. I just love those two characters bouncing off each other. You were saying before that you would love to read a whole book of just Oberon and Amanda going mm-hmm. at it. I would love to see just Batman and Amanda going oh, at it. Oh, that would like, that would be great. Everybody puts Batman on the pedestal and he's unimpeachable and nobody can match him, but like Amanda Waller can match Batman. Well, you mentioned you love the JLI Batman. I kind of like the JLI Batman too because he's just a guy, you know? He, yeah. He's he's a guy struggling in a management position of like an office. And, and so you see him in a different light. He's not the bat god. He's not infallible. He's not beating up everyone. He's just struggling to corral a herd of cats and it's not going his way. <laughs> and, uh, and I love that version of him. And, and him with Amanda, they're always on the back foot. 
now they, they've they've gone toe to toe in a few different comics over the years. But yeah, seeing a whole issue of that would just be awesome. I think I like the Oberon one more just because it's horribly offensive and inappropriate, and I just I'm a crude kind of guy. It's right there in the name, irredeemable. So <laughs> that's true. So one of the things that I've always really loved about this issue, you could look at this and the story that takes place before this one, the actual moment when Beetle goes bad, mm-hmm. and even like the little bit of the date with Density, which they continue some of these plots and just kind of evince them. It's part of like, it's like a four part story, right? And I've always loved that this issue, it doesn't solve it. Hmm. Like, you know, it comes in and we, we see Amanda and she's brought in and it's an amazing story, but she doesn't break Beetle's brainwashing. She she goes at first she triggers him, but then like when she they come up against the I believe it's called the Azrael blocks. Correct. And he just he starts convulsing. And it's one of my favorite drawings in the whole piece, that look on his face where you could see he's just withdrawn inside and he's losing control and he's lurching forward. And like the story is like Amanda doesn't fix it and like i remember being very surprised reading this kind of figuring like oh yeah she's just gonna have it worked out and then like batman's even not a complete jerk to her at the end right i, I got uh, i got a comment i'm gonna interrupt you just for full for one second the page where beetle's convulsing it, it's so, yeah it's so powerful for all the reasons you just mentioned and templeton's description you know drawing of the face and the tears and the blood but the other part of it for me is waller she literally pounces on beetle and is trying to she's squeezing him as hard as she can to hold him basically from the convulsing and so he doesn't to, to minimize how much he hurts himself and she's like screaming she's it, it's so intense I mean I'm getting I have goosebumps right now looking at this page it's so intense oh my gosh yeah it, a lot of times she's just portrayed as just doesn't care about anyone but like you could see she barely knows Beetle but she really cares in this thing she's really trying her best and the panels the way she's breaking against the borders and just like I can't say a nice enough nice stuff about the way that this issue is framed yeah again I don't know who gets the lion's share of the credit if this is Giffen or if this is Templeton but it's them working together this story is told so well and credit to Demetrius for keeping the spirit of the Suicide Squad you know keeping Amanda yeah. is feeling like Amanda I mean that takes a lot she feels real they all feel real in this one because even though she is a guest star from another book she feels completely like how she did in the other book which is also a great book but like them being these characters coming together it really felt like a true shared universe not crammed together for sales or whatever it made sense they went to Amanda it made sense stuff happened like this yeah now speaking of the brainwashing you mentioned the Azrael blocks I, I googled this I looked this up I mean you know as much as you can do with internet research as near as I can tell I don't know if it's an actual thing the first appearance I can find of it is actually in a Dean Koontz novel in 1986 called Strangers but then since huh. then it's appeared in a lot of stuff but that is the earliest instance I can find of it being mentioned which is only a couple of years before this came out exactly so I don't know if that was enough to push it into pop culture and popularity or if it was actually a real thing and that's just the first time it got mentioned in, in mainstream media. I don't, I can't tell you which. Maybe, again, put it in the comments, folks, if you know. Uh, and if any of you know a lot about brainwashing, I'm a little worried. So there, There's some great bits in here. You know, they wove Mr. Miracle in there we talked about. We talked about Dr. Fate. That's two more, by the way, plugs for out of the JLI book tying into the DC Universe. Admittedly, Demetrius wrote both those books, so it's a self-serving plug, but that's okay. They're great books. Blue, yeah. Blue Beetle, he makes a comment in the flashback about uh, how great it is to watch the Three Stooges in Spanish, which is funny, especially if you're reading this book alongside with Justice League Europe, which is being published congruently, where Metamorphose talking about the Three Stooges in French. So it's a, it's a reoccurring theme <laughs> Demetrius is using across both books, which is very clever. Is this at the exact same month? Uh, well, it was in issue number two, so it, it's one month apart, but the French Three Stooges thing comes up a lot in JLE. Oh, that's funny. It's definitely uh, coordinated what he's doing here. 
And also, I mentioned this last episode, you know, there's there's the theme of the brainwashing going on with Beetle here from Bialya. Meanwhile, at the exact same time, the issues on the shelves in Justice League Europe involve brainwashing happening from Jack-O-Lantern as he's brainwashed the Global Guardians. So even though these issues aren't technically crossovers, the same theme is happening in both books. Hmm. And, uh, now, is this the question is, is that something deliberate he's doing thematically? Or is in Demetrius's life, is he just kind of really interested in the concept of brainwashing? washing right now. I, I suppose he could be. I got to assume, though, because there, there's even some of the same trigger words. Like, Beetle was talking about, um, last issue, I've forgotten the phrase, but he was talking about, I think, My Queen or something like that. And then mm, yeah. in, in the Justice League Europe issue, on the shelf, the same month, the same phrases were used. So I got to think it's it's coordinated, which is interesting. We miss that nowadays, because when you read these as collected editions, you don't read them parallel. Like, let's read the May 1990, you know, 1989 issues together. You read a run of Justice League America, and then they have a run of Justice League Europe. So you don't read them back to back like we're doing right now. So you don't see that in yeah. the same month, the same things were going on. They just seem like two independent stories, which I, I found fascinating as I'm reading them together here. I'm like, oh, I never noticed the parallels here because I read those stories always broken apart. That reminds me of one of my favorite things that this book will do a few years down the road mm-hmm. when they have when they throw the cat in the transporter. <laughs> yes. Just that level of interconnectivity that you could do that. Like it basically became a two issue crossover. where They fought a cat. Right. <laughs> I can't wait. Some of that zanier stuff is going to be so much fun to get to. I can't wait. Uh, I mean, this this heavy, meaty stuff is what makes the series work because you get the laughs and then you get the hardship and the drama, which makes the drama work that much more. But you got to have the laughs to make the drama hit home. So it all is just so perfectly balanced. Yeah. Like, I feel like any JLI fan you talk to is going to talk about these issues as being amazing. Yeah. And I don't think they would be regarded nearly as well if this was the general normal tone of the book. But because it was so lighthearted and so fun, and like man you really love the character of Beetle like he's just a great guy mm-hmm. and to see this happen it is heartbreaking and when like the characters like like that bit with Guy where he's just kind of like he's justifying to himself making excuses why he has to be there but you know why he's doing it that's so heartwarming and it just it hits so much better it opens the door for you to actually start liking Guy like t- it tells you it's almost okay to like him now and you're right it <laughs> It's the funny moments in the previous issues which make these hit home so much more because you you laugh with your family, you have fun with your family, and then when the crisis happens, it makes you feel that much more connected to them. That's a great way of putting it. I, I do want to mention one more thing, which I'm interested because I haven't been reading ahead. I've been reading the issues as get ready for the podcast. In my memory, and it's probably been probably I don't know three or four years since I've read further on, so I don't exactly remember what's going to happen bit by you know verbatim in the next few issues. So walking away from this issue in Beetle's flat flashback, you see these other world leaders that have been brainwashed by Queen Bee, which was unrevealed yeah. up till now. In issue 16, you know, they, they obviously did this. They brainwashed all these people. And it's possible that Booster Gold has been brainwashed as well. And again, I, you know, don't spoil me in the comments, folks. I'll find out as we read the issues. But holy crap, is that going to pay off? I really hope it does. I don't remember. So I'm really looking How awesome it. that you don't. Oh, okay. Like so reading it again. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I get to be surprised one more time. So I'm looking forward to that. So on the page where we actually see in Beatles flashback, where we're actually getting his point of view, where we're seeing like the Queen Bee leaning over him, which by the way, it's an amazing drawing of her. Um, we do see the other world leaders in the background. Yep. I could be wrong, but there's the guy in the yellow and green shirt. Uh, I always thought was maybe Dr. Mist, who was like the head of the dome. I don't know. That would make a lot of sense, given that the Global Guardian 
Guardians are being brainwashed over in Justice League Europe right now at the same, you know, in this publication-wise, the same time. That would make a lot of sense, actually. And it does look like Dr. Mist, you're right. Yeah, and like, I, I know listening to previous episodes, you were kind of hitting the ground running, like trying to catch up on who these characters were when they appeared in these stories. And I remember being the same way. I'm like, who are these dudes? <laughs> right. And if it, weren't, if it weren't for like the old issues of who's who I had, uh, I would really have no idea that they weren't just created for these stories. But I remember finding like a group listing of them and be like, oh, maybe that's their leader guy. And with Dr. Miss's appearance in the Secret Origins comic not too long before this, uh, that would make a lot of sense. So yeah, I, you know what? We're officially declaring it. That's Dr. Mist. There it is. Unless, unless it's completely you know shown not to be in another issue, which it may be. Uh, we're just going to deny that. It's okay. We have that kind of power. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Speaking of looking at the past with forward-looking goggles, uh, when you get to the letters page, there is a snippet of a letter here. I'll read it. Uh, it says, uh, it's talking about Maxwell Lord and his powers. It says, this power makes sense when you think about it. I mean, if he didn't have some sort of telepathic mind control power, there'd be no way an obviously slimy, self-involved, domineering fellow could rise so high in business. What's that? Everyone in the corporate world's like that? Oh, never mind. And that letter <laughs> came from Scott Tipton of Antonacci, California. And yes, that that's Scott Tipton, New York Times best-selling author Scott Tipton, who has done a bunch of comics for IDW and Archie. He's done a lot of licensed properties like Star Trek stuff and uh, Angel, like from the Buffyverse, that kind of stuff. So, wow, that's awesome. I reached out to Scott and um, confirmed it is, in fact, his letter. That's fantastic. That's totally awesome. Last month, there was a letter from Brad Meltzer. So there's a bit of a run here on famous people loving this book. I mean, they all have good taste. Did George O'Connor ever write a letter? Or were you too lazy? <laughs> I was definitely too lazy. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. I tell you, those artist types can't be trusted. <laughs> all right. Speaking of people being lazy, let's see if George bothered to follow up and do his homework for this next segment, something I like to call... Wahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and George are going to pick a moment, and one of those will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, George, did you plan ahead? Did you get it done? Oh, I certainly did. Awesome. So what is your Bwahaha moment? Because it's probably hard to choose because there's a lot of not funny in this book. Yeah, I feel like that there's, just by the law of average, there's a pretty good chance we're going to choose the same one, which means we're going to have to arm wrestle to get who gets the Bwahaha <laughs> Award. I think you're totally going to get me. I've seen you've got the strength of Hercules, so. <laughs> this is a line... I I think of a lot like this is like a really like I think in a weird way a character defining line it's on the third page in the third panel where Batman is explaining to Beetle what has happened and he says no one's making anything up Beetle you went berserk you hurt Oberon and you almost killed Max gave me a damn good fight too and Beetle off camera goes I did really <laughs> it's that little moment of him being kind of impressed with himself even though it was a horrible thing and he doesn't remember he's like I give Batman a hard time that's pretty sweet <laughs> And I think, like, that says a lot about Beetle. And I've always loved that line. And I was really, like, that. I'm, there was no question that was going to be my wahaha moment. That's a really good one. And given the hearty laugh it just got out of me this moment, I may have to surrender already. We'll have to see. Mine is not the same moment. I really like that. Huh. Mine was the banter. Because I, I always love the set the joke up and then follow through with it kind of stuff. So mine was the combination of Murph and Oberon and um, Waller being nasty to each other. And then the follow-up is when Oberon gets to 
the office, and you know, and he goes, hey, "She's here, Max. Who's here? Here's here. The big fat black broad. The, the whole setup of where the midget and all that, where they're being nasty. That's what cracked me up. But given how hard I just laughed when you read the Blue Beetle bit, I'm actually going to surrender and give it to Blue Beetle because, and you know, given what's yes. going on this issue, I think he deserves it anyway. This is his issue. Yeah, he's all. had a rough time. He's in a coma by the issue's end. Exactly. So, congratulations, Beetle. Uh, this is uh, actually two issues in a row that you have won the Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Please wear it with pride, sir. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, now I am going to head over to the Paris Embassy and talk about Justice League Europe number three. So, George, do you mind hanging around here in the embassy? Maybe you can uh, help put all of Max's furniture back in that room when Beetle's done, if you don't mind. I could definitely do that. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that, George. Thank you so much. And we will bring you back at the end of the show. Don't worry. So, folks, after this podcast promo break, we're going to talk about Justice League Europe number three. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994 or 1944 or maybe 2994. Time is under threat and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember Legion. In 2014, two comic fans joined forces to do a Doom Patrol podcast. As there was no Doom Patrol comic series at the time, they called it Waiting for Doom. That was us, me, Mike, and him, Paul. In 2016, DC Comics became fearful of the power of Waiting for Doom and sought to appease us by bringing the comic back. Uh, That's not exactly how it went. In 2018, terrified of the sheer horde organising power of Waiting for Doom, DC Universe announced a Doom Patrol TV show. Uh, I think they were planning that without us. In 2019, they again brought back the Doom Patrol comic, hoping we would not smite them. Uh, This makes no sense. In 2021, they realised we were the most unstoppable force in existence and released the Doom Patrol movie. Uh, This is pure fantasy now. In 2022, a terrified Motion Picture Academy awarded the Doom Patrol movie every single Oscar, including Best Documentary and Foreign Language Film. Uh, That's enough, Paul. Look, we just love the Doom Patrol and have fun talking about them. You can find us on all podcast places and now Spotify. And check out our website, waitingfordoom.com, or we will wipe you out, all of you. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe number three.
from break, and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. This gentleman, folks, is a very brave soul. When the podcasting community cried out for a sacrificial lamb upon the altar that is Secret Wars 2, this man boldly stepped forward. Now he's taken podcasting by the horns and is guiding listeners through the beloved yet underappreciated gem that is Squadron Supreme by Mark Runewald. On a monthly basis, this man is forced to tolerate a working relationship, which almost seems like torture, with Sean Ross, who you might remember as our guest last month on this JLI show. And since starting on his podcasting journey, this man has become the master of the passive-aggressive compliment known as, it's fine. So, folks, please help me welcome to the show, Mr. Greg Arujo. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Greg. Thanks so much for being here. How you doing, buddy? Well, I would be doing better if we didn't have this cheese plate here in the, the European Embassy. I'm kind of lactose intolerant, and I really can't. <laughs> and the view outside the, the window, is that a dumpster? I'm not really liking what I'm seeing here. And before we get started, I'd like you to clip this card for another show on, on your network. That, uh, that way, I want to... <laughs> Get a complete set uh, before I announce my podcast retirement between Rob shows and and this one. I, I'm slowly making my way through the Fire and Water Network. Well, we'll we'll do your punch card. That's not a problem. Maybe we can get you on with Ryan Daly or Siskoid or a good podcaster or something like that. I'm not sure. But now, to be fair, the view out the window, as we have established in previous episodes of covering JLE, apparently wherever you stand in Paris, you can see the Eiffel Tower. At least per this comic book. So there it is. Right. Out. So you look right here. You just got to tilt your head a little. Bit. Oh. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. I was also kind of distracted by the guy with the baguette in his bag walking down the street. So. <laughs> baguette in a bag. Well, that would be the appropriate place to keep your baguette, wouldn't it? Well, at least if movies have taught us nothing else. Well, you know you have to wear the beret. It's mandatory. Well, obviously. And once again, was it in my room when I came here? No, there was not the complimentary beret. So I don't know who's in charge of the hospitality for the show, but you're going to have to have a, a strong talking to with them. Well, you can take it up with... With the uh, bureau chief, Catherine Colbert. So good luck with that. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Let's see how you handle that. So, all right, before we get too far down a road that I think both of us are going to regret, uh, <laughs> I should probably ask you how you came to fall in love with the JLI. So what is your personal experience with the book? Uh, either book, the series in general, the, the whole Justice League International era. And how did you discover it and what made you fall in love with the book? Well, if you turn your Wayback Machine all the way back to the mid, well, early 70s, in the beginning, there was the Justice League of America, which was ground zero for my comic book reading experience. So from the beginning, I have been a lifelong Justice League fan up and including the Justice League Detroit era. Granted, during this period of time, unfortunately, I was at the whims of the spinner rack. Yes, so yes. I would catch a few issues and then time ago, and I would not, as I got older, I would be able to either hitch rides to places where I could buy comics, but I really didn't get a local comic book shop until like right around 1984, 85. Mm-hmm. And so I, but even then, you know, I needed somebody to drive me. So I liked the Justice League Detroit. Detroit team, although I have to say, looking back at it, as much as I like it, I think that it's kind of a reaction to other more popular DC titles at the time, The Outsiders and or New Teen Titans. Oh my gosh, so, it was not a reaction to The Outsiders. Oh, it Come was too. On. You had a new team with some veterans with a bunch of new characters. That's like calling Guardians of the Galaxy a reaction to Omega Men. No, 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 well, no, no. no. But if you, but at the same time, when I saw the house ad for Justice League, the new Justice League, I saw that and I thought, oh, this is truly a a post. 
Crisis Justice League. Mm. This had some established Justice League heroes like Batman and Martian Manhunter, but at the same time had characters that were brought to DC, like your Blue Beetles or your Dr. Fates or your Dr. Lights. This was a team that stood on its own. This was leading the way. This one felt like brand new, nothing quite like it on the stands. And then I read it, and then I was blown away by not only Kevin McGuire's art, but J.M. Dave, I can't say his name, <laughs> and uh, Keith Giffen's writing. I and I got it right away. It was gonna. It was. It was a humorous take of it. But at the same time, I was kind of longing for you know the more of a traditional Justice League story. I loved Justice League America, but when they I saw the house ad for Justice League Europe, it's like, oh great, we got some powerhouses in here. And I think that even then there was a hint that this was going to be maybe a little bit closer to traditional Justice League, you know, a little bit more serious. Oh, yeah. The letters page of this very issue is full of it. Yeah, absolutely. That was the plan. So, I've loved Justice League from the very, very beginning all the way through the, the Bwahaha era and, and beyond. So, you were there at Ground Zero, obviously. <laughs> so, you stayed through it. So, you were there Ground Zero with, with Justice League Europe. Did you have a favorite title when they were on the stand? You mentioned you were, the, the appeal was there. So, you know, for at least the launch, the question is, did it deliver? Did it give you the, the superhero book you were looking for? I think at a, there was a period of time, and I think the window is really small, but I think Justice League Europe, I preferred that one over Justice League America. And looking back, and I think even once we go a little bit deeper into the series, I think I preferred the more whimsical in the JLA title versus mm. the JLE title. I just remember, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm reading these with the show. I haven't read these things. Well, I, I read them years ago when they came out. And then I reread them when I decided to do the podcast, which I think you told me was seven years ago. Um, <laughs> and so I haven't read them. It's really been like four and a half. But anyway, I haven't read them in about four and a half years. And I apparently have completely wiped the hard drive of the brain because I don't remember anything that's coming up other than I remember the extremist story being pretty darn Yeah, exciting. exactly. And I'm kind of like you in that regard. I think I remember the high points. I knew that there was a battle with uh, the Global Guardians. I knew that the extremists are out there. I know Breakdowns is there. I know that there's a JLA, JLE crossover. But the stuff in between, the ongoing story subplot with Metamorpho, I, I don't know if I remember all the details to that. Exactly. Or And some of the stuff involving Power Girl. And I remember the cat, but I don't remember everything about the cat. Eventually <laughs> so it's appear. all very so. exciting to rediscover this for me. So I'm looking forward to all this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I've been enjoying following along as I have the opportunity to rediscover all these wonderful gems. Well, why don't we get into this one? In fact, so this is Justice League Europe number three from DC Comics, cover dated June 1989. On the shelves, April 25th, 1989. Cover price is 75 cents, three shiny corners. And the cover is by Bart Sears. So do you want to describe the cover for us? Sure. Captain Adam and the rest of Justice League Europe's backs are up against the wall, confronting a wave of torch-carrying Parisians with Yankee go-home graffitis painted behind them. And in typical Wally West fashion, he exclaims, gee, Max never said there'd be days like this. <laughs> I absolutely love this cover. What do you... I do, too. You, you share your thoughts, and then I'll chime in. Okay, I look at this cover in two different ways. One is, you could almost say that it's a nice reaction to the first issue JLA cover, which you had the team confidently in your face, ready for action. And in this one, they're pushed up against the wall and against the threat facing them. It's interesting. Okay, I like that. That makes sense. But when I look at it, 
even closer, I think, wait, this looks familiar. And I'm reminded of X-Men number 141 with the Days of Future Past cover with Wolverine and Kitty up against a similar brick wall. Oh. And even the poses of Captain Adam and Catherine Colbert are kind of reminiscent of Kitty and Wolvie. Now, I don't, oh. I am not calling it a swipe, but I think it's a bit of an homage. It could be. I, you know, I'd have to look at the two side by side. I haven't looked at the 141 recently, but was there a spotlight on the... Yep, there was a spotlight, too. Interesting. It could be a nod. It's one of those things that, you know, I think about these things way too much. Well, you know what? If you're going to if you're gonna do an homage to a comic, that's oh, not a yeah, bad yeah. one to do. And actually, it's funny. Now, we think of X-Men 141. It's like, that was a million years ago. But in 1989, that was... What, maybe 10, 10 years or less, you know, probably. Yeah, at that something point. along those lines. Yeah. And there's other things about the cover I love. I love the brick bouncing off Rocket Red's head, or the little rock bouncing off Captain Adam's shadow. I absolutely adore that. Yes. And, and, and Metamorpho's made a giant hand, and like he's, he's busting up a tomato or something. Yes, absolutely wonderful. I have a quick question. Yes. You think Catherine Colbert on this cover was a hastily redrawn Wonder Woman who I think she was supposed to be on the team? Interesting. Okay, so, huh. My gut reaction would be to say no, because by this point, they pretty much got the memo that Wonder Woman is not going to be used. I think by issue number two, they'd already figured that out. However, the covers have to be done far in advance for solicitation purposes. So, it could have been. I mean, I guess that's possible. And, and the hair looks even bigger than it usually is in, in the, the proper book. I don't know. I just, it was one of those random thoughts that popped into my head as I, you know, as I look at it. Well, you got me wondering, because like, at first I was going to say no, 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 because look, she's in too much of a passive pose, right? You know, sort of pulled back. But then again, look at Power Girl. Power Girl's in the same kind of passive They're pose. They're all in a, in yeah. a passive pose They're all in a, like, a well. protecting themselves pose. Interesting. Huh. That's an interesting thought. Okay. Well, I, I will tell you, I love this cover tremendously. And it's in, in here, it's not just us. This cover is so good that when they did the collected edition of all the JLI issues, you know, they've done six of these trade paperbacks. Mm-hmm. The one, the, the trade that was focused on the Justice League Europe, this is the cover. Oh. Yeah. So they, other people also recognize how great of a cover this is. I mean, there's so, oh. there's so much detail in here. You see the whole team. It, it's not the bold, like you said, number one cover, but it's such a great representation of it. I absolutely love it. Oh, it's a poster. It could mm-hmm. easily be a poster. So it's beautiful. And then, uh, you know, I mean, these Parisians, they're not screwing around. I mean, tor- oh, no. torches, bricks. There is a baseball bat with nails sticking out of it. I mean, this is <laughs> Lucille style baseball bat coming at him. I mean, oh, my gosh. I, you know, further down the street, there's a kiosk where they're selling this stuff. So I guess so. I guess so. Whenever whenever a ride just might break out at any given time. And it's very different. And I was, I've been talking about this a lot lately. It's very different from the Kevin McGuire covers because mm-hmm. Kevin McGuire covers are usually the front image without much in the background. And this has got so much detail in it. I think that's part of the reason that it's so great. I mean, this is oh. a really spectacular cover. And right down to even the expressions. I mean, Bart Sears is in the, definitely in the same ballpark as a Kevin Maguire in terms of expressions, whether it's the annoyed look of Metamorpho to Ralph wondering, you know, can he hail a cab? <laughs> well, he even managed to get some sort of body language out of Rocket Red. Oh, which yeah. is pretty hard with that particular costume. Oh, yeah, exactly. He did a phenomenal job of allowing Rocket Red to emote in his own special Rocket Red way. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the cover nicely sums up the theme of the issue as well, which yeah. is fantastic. So speaking of which, why don't we get into it? So this issue is plotted by Keith Giffen. Now, whether the breakdowns are by Keith Giffen or not is debatable. We don't know at this point. Uh, it's not in the credits, but we'll talk about it in a minute. Script by James DiMatteis, penciler Bart Sears, inker Pablo Marcos, letterer Albert D. Guzman, colorist Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, and editor Andy Helfer. So, Greg, why don't you start us off with the first half of the story? I shall indeed. Another fine mess. Issue 3 opens with yet another team meeting around the JLE conference table, allowing Captain Adam to recap recent events, the mysterious Nazi dropping dead on their doorstep, the invasion of brainwashed Parisians, and the attack by former members of the Global Guardian, not only for the team, but for any new readers who happen to pick up this issue. Fortunately for the JLE, the meeting is cut short by the arrival of a French government official for his appointment with Captain Adam. Captain Adam manages to screw up this meeting by (laughs) revealing one of the JLE's major shortcomings. Not only is this European team lacking in European team members, but the majority of the team can't even speak the local language. Meanwhile, Sue Dibney reminds the team, Fire and Ice were once members of the Global Guardians, and they might be able to shed some insight on the recent attacks. And then they discovered the Global Guardians' former headquarters are still located, conveniently enough, in Paris. Without informing Captain Adam, Power Girl, Elongated Man, and Flash decide to visit the Global Guardians' former headquarters, which is now a popular tourist attraction. Despite their best efforts, Owl Woman and Jack-O-Lantern recognize the JLE members in their civilian identities, resulting in a wave of brainwashed tourists. Not wanting to hurt the harmless civilians, they race away, turn a corner, and find themselves facing... They find themselves facing Jack-O-Lantern on one side and a mob of angry brainwashed Parisians on the other. Jack-O-Lantern gloats about setting up the League and how they'll be blamed for attacking these innocent citizens. A battle ensues with Jack-O-Lantern mentioning his power upgrade from his new friends in Bialya. Explosions then rock the dome as Jack-O-Lantern uses his mystical lantern to knock out both Ralph and Wally and then teleports away before Power Girl can get him. Captain Adam arrives at the dome where Inspector Camus is accusing the JLE of an unprovoked attack. Meanwhile, inside, Jack-O-Lantern and Owlwoman teleport away, leaving behind a bomb. Power Girl exits the dome, carrying the unconscious forms of Ralph and Wally, and Captain Adam, having now heard of their unauthorized trip, gets in Power Girl's face for her involvement in this fiasco. Kara and the Captain each blame each other for these problems, ending with Captain Adam sarcastically saying, next time, why don't you just decide to blow up the whole damn building? And as if on cue, the dome explodes. Hours later, Captain Adam is talking with Catherine Colbert, and he says he's sick of being pushed around, and it's time to start pushing back. Next issue, be you bound. Oof. All right. So this issue has a lot more in it than I remembered. I was thinking this issue really was kind of a filler, but there's a lot going on here. What do you think of this? Well, here's two things. First of all, I think the title of this should not have been Another Fine Mess. I think it should have been called Rock in the Dome. <laughs> okay. But to speak to what I felt about the issue, I liked it. And it was fine. Um, oh, I knew no. that was coming. Here's I knew that th- was coming. Well, I had to get it out of the way. Somebody somebody out there has a Greg Arujo drinking game, and I figured that I would give them the, at least one. It's it's fine. You know, it's perfectly fine to have catchphrases, because we're going to talk about Catherine Colbert in a bit. That's fine. <laughs> if the first issue was an introduction to the team, the second issue was the start of the actual mystery, and the next issue is the conclusion, then this issue is kind of like the bridge. But then at that point, we have to ask ourselves, is this a satisfying 32 pages? worth of comics and I have to say yeah I I really kind of enjoyed it even though it really doesn't have a beginning and it really doesn't have an ending 
<laughs> I, I also enjoy it. I feel like, you know, especially when you go back and reread it and you realize that they're setting up the connections between Power Girl and Elongated Man and Flash. And it, it like the first time I read it, I didn't notice all that setup. And now like I see the structure that J.M. DeMatteis was putting in there uh, based on Keith's plots. And I'm like, okay, I see how this builds. And it does feel organic for these three characters mm-hmm. to go do this thing. Yeah, I, th- I think it does a really good job of setting up, honestly, it's kind of a minor side adventure. The shenanigans over at the Global Guardians headquarters. And it's not the first time we've seen a brainwashed mob in this title. But right. on the threat-o-meter, it's kind of low. But it, it, it sets up what's going to happen in the next issue. We know what the where the threat is coming from. We learn a lot. As uh, 32 pages, it is rather satisfying. It sets up you know some of the ongoing subplots, whether it's the lack of European team members or the lack of French speakers and how the Parisians might feel about having only Soviet and American heroes on their soil. Right. And the ongoing nostalgia for the Global Guardians. So interesting thing about the Global Guardians, right? Because last issue, they fought three of them and all that goes on. And there's not a single mention. The words Global Guardians do not appear in issue number two. And yet there were three or well, if you count Jack-O-Lantern and Owlman, five of those members included. When I read it the first time around, I had no idea who those people were. They were just the people in issue number two as far as I was concerned when I read it back in 1989. So I get to this issue and it's right there on Front Street, right on the first page. It says Global Guardians. So it's cluing you in. But uh, it's sort of interesting that uh, I don't know whether they intentionally left the names off in issue two and this is just catch-up work or what? Uh, it's hard to say, but I, I still, I'm wrestling how I feel about how the Global Guardians have been treated throughout all of the Bwahaha era. They were instantly relegated to almost joke level once the JLI took over international status. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, part of me feels like it's kind of a waste of these characters to treat them this way. Hey, Greg, congratulations for being the one person who ever really stood up and tried to take the Global Guardian seriously. Well, the nostalgia glasses <laughs> are on for the various issues of Super Friends that had them in them. Oh, I totally get that. But I, there's not a lot of people that stand up and go, you know, the Wild Huntsman, I feel like he could have been a contender. He could have been. To, to speak of that, though, people said that about Animal Man and then takes a Grant Morrison to make people think of Animal Man in a different way by either eliminating them, turning them into villains. He, you're kind of limiting what you could do with them. And I'm not saying that they're going to be the next big thing, but at the same time, I think some of them have some potential. I remember liking uh, Jack Lantern when I read him in the Super Friends back in the day. And, and to be fair, they, the Global Guardians do get redeemed many years later in a Justice League Europe, I think, quarterly story. And I think that just goes to prove that nobody cared. Once they were <laughs> heroes again, nobody cared. Now, great usage of Jack Lantern in Primal Force. That was great. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And one of the ongoing subplots that obviously comes up is like the Ralph Waltley tension. This is not how Barry would do it. And I wrestle how I feel about that as well. But issue number two made my piece on that one um, because in that one, uh, they, they have this the typical back and forth thing. But, uh, and, and I talked about this last month, so forgive me. But yeah, but Elongated Man called him on it. He said, Look, you're wearing the costume. You took on Barry's job. You don't get to dodge that, but you can't just wave it away and go, Don't compare me to Barry because you're wearing his clothes. And it was like, hmm, that's a good damn point. It is a good point. It's just the constant reminder of it. It's like, come on. I mean, it's not like Wally hasn't been the Flash for a while now. And it's not like Wally and Ralph are strangers. But No, it's true. No. And and poor Kyle Rayner will deal with that. Oh, yeah. Gears look from now, too, with the whole, uh, you're not the real one. And then one other thing that, you know, I realized that uh, I missed the Ralph and Sue interactions. Mm, 
Mm. They're so good. They're so good. There's a line in this issue where she, she does something brilliant. Of course she does. And Ralph goes, my wife, I think I'll keep her. And she goes, care to rephrase that? <laughs> think she'll keep me? Yeah, I I love <laughs> it's that. Adorable. I love the that the interaction between those characters. And to be honest, Catherine Colbert and Sue are probably my favorite parts of this entire book. <laughs> uh, this issue or the whole series? Uh, pretty much the whole series. But then, to be honest, as much as I like the superheroes, and you didn't ask me who my favorite characters were, well, it would have been Catherine Colbert and Sue Dibney. I like the support team a little bit more than I like the heroes. They always seem to be the ones that are the most competent of the team. It's funny you should mention things. In my notes, I, I have Catherine Colbert, Sue Dibney, and Inspector Camus are really all competent professionals. I mean, they all have a job. They all have a role. Now, admittedly, Sue's a volunteer job, but they all have a role, and they're all extremely competent in what they do, whereas everyone else is a goofball and screws up, which is kind of the JLI motto. Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Those three are so well put together. They make certain that, that everything runs on schedule. And since we're, you did your catchphrase, I guess I have to do mine. Catherine Colbert, she is always drawn, and purposefully so, to be smoking hot. Oh, yeah. And she is the whole package. I mean, she's brilliant. She's she's incredibly capable. She's gorgeous. She's a Parisian icon. I mean, she's they, they did a fantastic job with this character. They could have really screwed it up by leaning too hard into one direction or another. But no, they, they really did a great job with that character. And it's a shame that she's, I mean, she appeared in Young Justice, what, season three or something like that. But other than that, she hasn't really broken through. And I feel like she could have. I, I feel the same way. The only thing about her is like so much hair. <laughs> it was the 80s. I know. Oh, but here, here's my secret questions. Oh, no. These things. Bring in my secret question from the Squadron Supreme and Secret Wars show. Here's my secret question to you. Oh, no. Which superhero on this team has your favorite hairstyle? Um, Actually, Captain Adam. I should have said a metamorpho. <laughs> uh, I love Captain Adam. It's not really a mullet, I don't think, because it's not like short, short up top. But I guess maybe it is a mullet. But it, when it's super shiny silver, it looks so stinking cool. I love his hair. What about you? Um, Well, I'll tell you, to be honest. Honestly, what I really like, not so much the hairstyle, but I really like Rocket Red's mustache. I have some real mustache <laughs> envy for that. That'll work. That's, that is a form of hair, so I'll accept that. <laughs> but everyone sort of has longish hair in this one, like elongated man's kind of hair. Hair is a little bit long. It's, you know, it's the style of the 90s. Oh, goodness. So much hair. <laughs> I want to address something. You were talking about Ralph and Sue earlier, and you mentioned Wally and all that. And did you notice the choice of names you used? You used their real names, which is sort of interesting. I noticed when I was reading this issue, there is an amazing amount of real name usage throughout hmm. this thing. Ralph is constantly called Ralph throughout the book. Wally is called Wally throughout the book. Power Girl gets called Power Girl, but also Kara. Animal Man, for the most part, gets called Buddy. You know, Rocket Red, I don't think they ever say Rocket Red. They say Dimitri. Captain Adam's the only one who goes by his superhero name. In the, and I'm talking about this issue in particular. And that's because he's trying to protect his secret identity at this point. Now, by comparison, and I know you haven't heard this yet, Greg, but we were, George and I, in the first half of the show, we talked about Justice League America, where up there, almost everyone is exclusively super hero names except for Jean. So what a flip when you get to here where, you know, it, 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 is this going to be more of a family? Because it's sort of, you know, it's more familiar to use their real name. And I know when I'm at work, I'm using people's real name. I'm not using their fake superhero name. So I just sort of, you know, I, I like it. Oh, I so I shouldn't be using my 
fake superhero name at work? Okay. Yep, uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, but, but to your point, I think these heroes that in the Justice League Europe team tend to be more public heroes. I don't think Wally really has a his identity, I don't believe, is secret at this point. Ralph is right out there. Everybody knows who he is. Buddy Baker. I think everybody knows who Buddy Baker is, too. That's fair. Okay, that's a fair point. Hmm. Uh, that may be something to do with it. I, I like to think that it's more just people getting to know each other. But How casual can you be over in the American team when you don't know where Batman's going to show up? And, you know, he's probably a stickler for making certain everybody uses their superhero name. It's probably in the handbook. <laughs> He does love his rules, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. He really yes. does. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk about Ice, because, you know, Ice appears in this issue. They're talking to her on the monitor because of her time with Global Guardians, and she says, oh, Jack-O-Lantern and Owl Woman have allied themselves with the Queen Bee, which was very useful. I'm glad she shared that with the JLE. That's very good. And then she says, I'm afraid that's all I know. And then I'm kind of imagining, like, a follow-up conversation that yeah, didn't but- happen in the comic, where she might say something like, oh, whoops, I completely forgot that Blue Beetle just tried to kill several people on the JLA um, and he was instructed to by Queen Bee by a hypnotic command. Sorry, slipped my mind. My bad. I'm a little bit surprised that there isn't more cross-cutting between the two titles. I know that at this point they're probably trying to make certain Justice League Europe is its own entity and not necessarily the second tier book but I think even in the days of the local comic shop so I think the Venn diagram is people buying Justice League Europe are also buying Justice League America. Right. Well, And there's a, also a very purposeful story going on here because and I mentioned this before too like when I reread these I'm doing it in the trade paperback format so I end up reading like five issues of Justice League America and then five issues of Justice League Europe and you don't think about them being on the shelves at the same month but clearly J.M. DiMatteis and Keith Giffen were writing a story that was parallel here where Beetle is being controlled by Queen Bee in Justice League America at the exact same time the Justice League Europe people are fighting the Global Guardians are being mind controlled by the Queen Bee the two parallel each other so yeah they should have they should have threaded that needle a little tighter yeah maybe not not made you feel like you have to read that book but having, you know, I say something like, hey, we're having our own problems with the Queen Bee over here right now, too. And they're really trying to make Queen Bee a thing over in both the Justice League titles, too. Yes, they are. And it uh, looks like we're going to be all you next month, so I guess we will find that out. The other thing that I just thought of is, like, what I love is the fact that the Global Guardians headquarters is a tourist trap. <laughs> and I'm just, here's another secret question for you. What oh, no. other places in the DC Universe would be a similar tourist trap? Hmm. Well, anything that's formerly Justice League headquarters, like into the Secret Sanctuary, I could totally see that becoming tourist trap. Um, maybe Titan's Tower, once they vacate it and move to San Francisco, the one in New York could become, a, assuming it's still standing, I think it fell down. Either it's still standing and maybe fumigated too. Yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe just the site of the t- t- the Titan's Tower. Uh, the spot where Superman dies certainly became a tourist <laughs> trap. They had a little plaque in the ground and everything. So what about you? What do you got for uh, I, tourist Well, trap? I was just kind of wondering if Max Lord has, you know, regularly scheduled tours of the various embassies allowing just you know a handful of people to come in there's there's another revenue stream for him okay with you can do all kinds of tours you like this is the cave where I went spelunking and tried to kill my boss you know and there's his, his bones right there he could do that tour too well yeah exactly and then it would give him an opportunity to have little souvenir kiosks as well I'm surprised Blue Beetle and Booster aren't doing that <laughs> All right, so here's my secret question for you, unrelated to that. So, Wonder Woman 
hasn't bothered to show up, right, for two issues so far, <laughs> and we know this is going to go on for a long time. How did that conversation go down when they finally got her on the phone? Well, I think she, well, this is before text. I feel like she probably would have resigned via text. <laughs> <laughs> that does seem like a, a move to to do based on what's going on with this book. So yeah. maybe she had Etta Candy come by and hand deliver a note or convey a message saying, uh, this isn't working. It's not you. It's me, but it's mostly you. <laughs> I think your answer is perfect. I cannot improve upon that. <laughs> So Power Girl, Elongated Man, and Flash going to the Dome without checking with Captain Atom. Are they right for doing that? Should they have cleared it through Captain Atom? What are your thoughts on that? Well, in the, in the spirit of teamwork, maybe they should have you know, been a little bit forthcoming about what they were deciding to do. But I think they're not wrong that Captain Atom would have told them not to go. I don't think the mission went the way that they thought it was going to go. And I guess Jack Lantern's there to to discredit the team. And to be to be completely fair, the team does a pretty good job of discrediting it themselves with their lack of European heroes and the ability to speak the local language. But isn't that Max's fault, though? Well, yeah, I think so, too. Somebody should have, before they had the meeting with the official, realized that uh, th- this lineup, there's something missing from it. But at the same time, if, when they go into and have the battle, they're in, in their civilian identities. Most of these people are brainwashed, and who knows what they remember when they come out of it. Are they going to necessarily know that it was the Justice League Europe? It's not like they were in their their uniforms. Well, I think Jekyll and made sure of it, because when they're interviewing that guy at the end, he's specifically saying the Justice League attacked us. And so he's saying the Justice League's a menace. So I think Jack Lantern ensured that the people remember the Justice League. But I do like the fact that they were in the midst of that fight in their civilian outfits rather than, well, I guess Ralph ends up in his out regular uniform because obviously he keeps that underneath his clothes at all times. Well, sure. Well, w- well, you know, if you're going to be stretching, there's probably so many times that you stretched and came out nude that you learn your lesson but, and you're always keeping that underneath. Well, you know, maybe, maybe Ralph's an exhibitionist. We just don't know. <laughs> Well, you mentioned Jack O'Lantern. I got to say, the way he's orchestrated this whole PR nightmare for Justice League Europe is actually pretty cool. As a guy with a marketing background, I really dig the way he sort of manipulated the whole situation. It's like, a, I imagine he had like a nice three-ring binder and marketing <laughs> plan for ruining the JLE on his desk, you know, and it's one of those where like the laminate cover and all that kind of thing. I I, I think he brought it to the meetings, you know, and I, I was pretty impressed by it. I would think that a few years later, he would have had a nice PowerPoint presentation that he would present to the Queen Bee. Exactly. And dude, that guy's crazy powerful, too. Oh, I, mean, I was looking at his, he's got bright light flashes, he's intangible, he's got force fields, he's crazy energy blasts, he can control his little lantern remotely. He's super duper powerful. He is one bad dude. <laughs> but before we get to the art, because we do need to talk about the art, I got one more thing. You know, again, the whole theme of the issue is that Justice League Europe doesn't represent Europe. And there's this amazing bit in here where Captain Adam says to Catherine, it's not my fault there are no European superheroes worth their salt. Holy crap. Like, even I was stunned that he said that. Yeah, that's a nice bit of the ugly American popping up. Yeah, yeah. And Catherine's reaction was, like, perfect. They, I mean, oh, yeah. the, art, the art there is fantastic. It's a, it's a McGuire-worthy drawing of her face being, like, shocked, going, can you hear yourself? <laughs> you know, it was really, really well done. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've been thinking about Bart Sears pencils in on this particular issue because when you look at the credit box, he's listed as pencils, where I think in the previous issues, Keith Giffen had plot and breakdowns. Is, am I remembering that correctly? See, here's the thing. I don't remember which one's which because it gets really weird, actually. It goes back and forth from issue to issue, but looking at the way the stories are laid out, reading interviews with Bart Sears where he talks about working from Keith's layouts and knowing the way Keith would plot these stories out and with the amount of butt shots that are in this issue, I feel confident that actually Keith Giffen is still doing the breakdowns and I think it's just not there in the credits. Yeah, it's, it's interesting for a couple things. First of all, I've been reading, thanks to the, the magic of the, the DC Universe streaming service, I've been reading a lot of five years later Legion of Superheroes, which has <laughs> his breakdowns. And so I've, I've kind of gotten used to the way he sets up a panel or a page and there's a lot of similarities in the way that this book is laid out. But when you look at, as I said, if you look at the credit box, Keith Giffen only gets plot break. But when you look at it even closer, you can see that the words are a little bit spaced funny and a little bit smaller. So I'm wondering if there was some change at the last minute. Hmm. That could be. Or it could be because you notice actually the, the names all get bigger. as Yeah, the exactly. Down. So it may be that they started small and realized they weren't filling the box. Well, there's <laughs> that too. Which. But it really looks like his breakdowns. If, if you go strictly by butt shots, which again, it seems to be a Keith Giffen hallmark, I've noticed. We do get butt shots of Elongated Man, Rocket Red, and Captain Adam, which, by the way, I think that's pretty fair play, having a bunch of guy. And I think the tour guide as well, at least once. That's true. That's true. And I think that's a pretty fair representation, considering the way comics usually treat women in superhero costumes, <laughs> to show off the guys as well. But, you know, don't worry, the women definitely get shown. There's a lot of sexually suggestive drawings in this issue of Power Girl and Owl Woman in essentially teeny tiny skin-tight mm-hmm. bathing suit costumes, which is sort of ridiculous how small those costumes are. I just, I can't imagine hanging out with someone in a work environment where they're walking around just like that. <laughs> uh, HR would have a right. field deal. Exactly. Well, especially with someone like Wally around. I could, oh, ugh, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, he would have his own personal HR representative on call at all times. And he actually behaved himself this issue. We don't have any skeevy Wally to talk about this time. Ah, uh, man. But <laughs> I'm I, thankful for that, by the way. But there are little things about the pencils. Like, I, I love the use of facial expression. We talked about it with the cover, but throughout this entire issue, it's just so incredible to see the various different expressions and the poses. Further along, I'm not as big of a fan of Bart Sears' work, but this early stuff is a nice reminder that once upon a time, he had some pretty good solid chops. Oh yeah, absolutely. These these issues look great. His art definitely takes a very stylistic approach as, as the years go on, but at this point, yeah, it's fantastic. I love the expression, especially like you know the government official. <laughs> it's got this you know out- outraged expression. We talked about Catholic Colbert's expression earlier. Uh, one of the things I really love that he does, on, that, on page uh, three, where Captain Adam's talking to the government official, there's some really amazing use of shadowing mm-hmm. because Captain Adam is such a weird reflective surface anyway it's really hard to represent him in lines and yet he did this great you know uh, line work to represent shadows and the way light would reflect off of Captain Adam and I think it looks stunning I still have a hard time reconciling bulky Ralph Dibney but I guess maybe I can no prize it away as Ralph subconsciously inflating himself because Sue keeps commenting about how much she likes Captain <laughs> Adam uh, I suppose that's possible but that doesn't explain Animal Man then either, who's totally <laughs> ripped like insanely. So you just kind of like accept it. But it's like, okay. On the but one again, hand, there's that. I, but then on the other hand, I love the little kid in the tour that's wearing the little jack-o'-lantern costume. Yes! Yes! That's, he's so adorable! That's so awesome. It's a nice little thing that you just don't see a lot of that these days. And let me get my old man cane out, wave it at a cloud. But... <laughs> 
you know, there's some 80s fashions going on here. And yeah, some of it, I think I like it. I like what Sue's wearing. I like what Catherine sure. Colbert's wearing. The tour yep. guide, that what she's wearing. I don't know. Kara's purple, whatever that is. I don't know. She's definitely wearing like a corporate power dress. That's definitely what it appears to look like. It's it's very strange. And then also Ralph has got a shirt that's buttoned up straight all the way up, but no collar or anything. Very all right, go with me here for a second. While they're on this tour, it sort of reminds me of, you remember the movie Weird Science? Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like this is sort of like in the spirit of the scenes where Anthony Michael Hall and the other kid, whatever his name is, and Kelly LeBrock and them all get like super dressed up to go out on the town, but their fashions are like way over the top 80s. And, you know, uh, she's wearing this uh, amazing like dress and, and the boys are wearing these suits that are so loud and garish, but also all in dark tones. So it's supposed to look cool. And then later on, you get Robert Downey Jr. Who's who's wearing the shirt buttoned all the way up, you know, <laughs> Iron Man with the buttoned up shirt all the way. It's like, like he looks like what Ralph's wearing with the buttoned up shirt. I would expect Wally to wear that. I don't know if that's what I imagine Ralph wearing his civilian clothes. I see more of like a loud Hawaiian t-shirt. <laughs> You're probably right about that. You're probably right about that. Well, even a Power Girls, if she lost the jacket, her dress would look a little bit like what Kelly LeBrock was wearing when they went out clubbing that night. True, true. I, I guess that's what one wears to uh, a tourist trap in Paris. Apparently so. And those shoulder pads. You could write epic poems <laughs> about those shoulder pads that Power Girls are wearing. I mean, those are amazing. Now, I will give a credit to one thing about the fashions, which I thought was really amazing. There is a scene in here where Power Girls fighting uh, jack-o'-lantern and because she's wearing it's, it's essentially a pencil skirt i mean it's a dress but it's, it's a design like a pencil skirt so it's very restrictive her legs are kind of pushed together she totally rips the dress in the back and it's not in a terribly provocative way it's just more in a functional way and i thought that was really nice of bart sears to draw that basically showing how ridiculous these fashions are for fighting criminals and so she shreds the dress in the legs area so she can move her legs around for this fight which then sort of reminded me of um do, do you ever watch any of the the, the cw shows yeah occasionally I remember something like that. Wasn't that at like at the first attempted wedding of uh, yes. Barry and Iris? Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. Both, uh, I think it was uh, White Canary and Alex, Supergirl's sister, both ripped their dresses so specifically so they could move their legs around and have some leg room so they could fight and kick butt. So it reminded me of that. And then later on, there's another moment in this comic that also reminded me of that same crossover. It's called Crisis on Earth X, by the way, where a elongated man's fighting the crowd, right? And he looks around and Flash and Power Girl are all the way on the other side of the room. He's like, hey, how'd you guys get over there so quick? Oh, wait, never mind. He realizes they're both super fast. Well, there is a scene in Crisis on Earth X where Flash and Supergirl fly ahead and they get to their destination and then they just kind of sit there like picking their fingernails and waiting. <laughs> and then Arrow finally shows up on a motorcycle and he says, and the first thing he says is like, you guys know I don't have super speed. And it's just oh, both of these things in this issue. I'm like, could the Crisis on Earth X guys actually have thought about this issue when they did it? Probably not. Well, you never know. They, they have cracked open a comic book. That's where I was going to go. It was like, it's Flash and Supergirl, Flash and Power Girl. I mean, there are some par- parallels here. And these guys do read the comic, so who knows? If I have one thing about this art, and I know that you guys have brought it up before in the past, I wish they would color Wally's hair correctly. What the heck? It's hard not to be reminded of Barry, with Wally always being like, Barry wouldn't do that. It's hard not to think about Barry when he looks like Barry in this damn comic. That doesn't bother me as much, because in my mind, Barry He's always got like a buzz cut and I, or a flat top or whatever. And I know he didn't always, but anyway, that's just the way I remember him. But I get confused about Buddy Baker. Oh, yeah, exactly. In fact, well, they go to the dome and for and I counted for two pages. They don't use his name. 
So you don't know if it's Wally or Buddy who's on this tour. It takes two pages or nine pages, oh, depending okay. on how you count, before they finally refer to him by, uh, I think they call him Kid Flash or something at that point. But otherwise, you don't know which character it is. Well, back to Bart Sears' artwork. He does a pretty good job of distinguishing each character as being slightly different from the others. He, he doesn't necessarily have, at least not at this point, a stock face for all the male characters and a stock face for all of the female characters. If you put them side by side, you can definitely tell the difference between Catherine Colbert and Sue Dibney, even though they both have dark hair. Yes. Sue and Catherine are perfect examples of adult women who wear regular clothes and both have black, long black hair, and you can distinctly tell them apart. Those are great examples. I don't think Flash and Buddy are distinct enough at this point with both being blonde-headed. I really, I'm looking back and forth right now. I still can't see the difference in their faces between So I'm going to give the wagging finger of shame to uh, Jean D'Angelo for once again not getting the hair color correct. Right, because, you know, obviously if they're scared of giving him red hair because they don't want it to be confused with elongated man, those two do have distinctly different looking faces. So it would have worked fine. And, you know, at some point, Ralph is going to be stretching. Right, exactly. You know, Wally was created in 1959, if I remember correctly, only a few years after Barry. So Wally has actually been part of the DC Universe longer than almost every other Silver Age character. And yet they can't color his hair right? I mean, come on. I don't know. Somebody was asleep at the switch. I mean, it's a minor thing, but... But That's we're here to we're here to nitpick. Though. Exactly, <laughs> they should have known that thirty some odd years later we were going to be talking about it. Exactly. I mean, come on, no brainer. So, all right, another secret question for you. All There's right, there's been some discussion about Power Girl being based on a real world person because she just looks so unlike some of the other characters. She looks extremely distinctive. Hmm. If you were had to guess, and I've got a couple suggestions, but I'm going to put you on the spot first. Do you have any thoughts on who she might be based on? And I need to ask Bart Sears someday, I guess. This version of Power Girl or Power Girl just... No, the Bart Sears version of Power Girl at this point in issue three. Well, I have Swamp Thing on the brain, so maybe Virginia Madsen, but I don't know if that's hmm. quite it. Well, I was going to say Swamp Thing with, with Virginia Madsen and Jennifer Beale in it. It's like the 80s all over again, and I love it. <laughs> um... Oh, I don't know. I'll throw these two at you, and, and I can't claim credit for these guys, folks. This has come from you folks at home who have written into the show and, and suggested that perhaps she is drawn based on Denise Crosby, which I see that. I do. Or this one blew me away. At first, I was like, what? And then I started looking. I'm like, huh. Marky Post. Both big names at this point. I would probably buy Marky Post over Denise Crosby. I have Tasha Yar in my head with the short cut hair. If you cover the hair and just look at the facial expressions, I could see either one of them, actually. It's possible. I see more Marky Post than I do Denise Crosby. Okay. All right. Well, I'll give you marks for trying. Well done, sir. You came up with at least one suggestion, but in general, you pretty much failed, which is kind of, it sums up your whole podcasting career, really, I think. I was going to say, just it's just a day that ends in why. <laughs> I am going to give you a chance to redeem yourself, sir, in a segment I like to call Character Spotlight. This is where Greg is going to tell us a little bit about one of the characters from this book. And we're not really going to do a deep origin recap or where the characters, you know, all their history. I mean, let's face it, folks. If you're listening to the show, you probably already know all that stuff. So we're, we're more interested in how this sort of relates to the Justice League and how this character benefited from being part of the Justice League or did not benefit. So, Greg, could you tell us a little bit about the one we all adore, Sue Dibney? Oh, Sue, who was introduced in Flash number 119 and the, the elongated man backup, the elongated 
created man's undersea trap. And from almost from the beginning, Sue was a unique addition to the elongated man mythos. I think he had had a couple appearances prior to Sue's first appearance, but from almost immediately, she's made herself a unique addition to not only his story, but to the DC universe as a whole. She was not the typical girlfriend. She was not a crime fighter, With but although she did have some detective skills, she was not really along for the ride, not exactly a sidekick. I wouldn't even call her a supporting character. She was like not quite the lead, the co-lead, and she was not one of those type of Silver Age girlfriends who were trying to solve you know, the mystery of Elongated Man's <laughs> secret identity. She was a willing participant with the adventures, and if she wasn't because she was bored, hey, there was always shopping. Uh, <laughs> but much like her husband, the majority of her appearances were relegated to background stories in both either Flash or Detective. But that role kind of changed when she and Ralph joined the Detroit League. And she, as Zatanna put it, she added a human element to the team, which they, they were so desperately needing. And she started to run the computers and do monitor duty, which, you know, nobody wants to do monitor duty, and it allowed her to, to hang out and work with Ralph on a more regular basis. And But unfortunately, as the Justice League Detroit transitioned into the Wahaha League, she and Ralph kind of went from an ongoing presence to nearly forgotten. I mean, there was like two and a half years between her last appearance in Justice League of America and uh, in Justice League Europe in April of 1989, which is kind of just insane. Maybe like one or two appearances. I think she and Ralph appeared in a issue of Power of Adam. For I was just, that was actually what was going through my brain was, I think Power of Adam. <laughs> but but that's about it. Two, two years just gone. And then you, she joins and once again kind of takes up initially the monitor duty roles kind of pre-Oracle in a, in, a, in a way for the Justice League Europe team. And along with, as I mentioned earlier, she and Catherine Colbert are the most level-headed members of the organization. And I think they're the thin man type of banter that she and Ralph had always kind of had were really highlighted by the Giffen D. Mateus and even Bill Loeb's dialogue during this period. Uh, it took it to a completely different level, I think. And really, I think, as I said, I think their relationship is probably like amongst the most unique of all married couples at both Marvel and DC just because you really rarely ever saw any type of like tension or drama. They were that happy, fun-loving married couple. I think maybe if you just kind of think about it, maybe it's even like second to Scott Free and Barda's relationship. I don't know. And she remained a steadfast character throughout all of Justice League Europe. I think she even became like the um, bureau chief towards the end of Before Breakdowns or somewhere along in that period. And there's like little things about this character, like her annual setting up of a mystery for her husband to solve. Unfortunately, Ralph had usually solved the mysteries before it even had really had a chance to start. <laughs> like in the Justice League Quarterly number six. And then even in the Elongated Man miniseries, she's kidnapped by Sonar, who's fallen in love with her. But she manages to free herself and even inspires her Sonar subjects to rise up again with him. Now, unfortunately, when JLA finally comes to an end, her and Ralph's kind of appearances kind of fall to the wayside a little bit. And, well, unfortunately, you can only apparently have one stretchy character in the DC universe at any t given time. As, uh. as Ralph's star goes down, Plastic Man goes up. 
but those are two completely different characters and Sue is such is tied so closely to to Ralph that you know if if Ralph's star is going down unfortunately Sue gets drugged down as well and you know she and Ralph do appear towards the end of Starman and settle in Opal City as uh, mm-hmm. as resident detectives there and nothing bad ever happened afterwards that's right that was the end of their story until they were brought back by Gail Simone more recently in uh, the rebirth era of DC exactly <laughs> Sue is a wonderful character and for me now I've never read those elongated man backups in the flash never ever still to this day so I don't know anything about them other than when I've read apocryphally or heard and so for me I discovered Sue in Justice League Detroit which mm. was my first Justice League ongoing book I was collecting and absolutely adored her she really was uh, the human as you guys as you said the human part of the league she was I don't know if she was quite the heart and soul but she was certainly a piece of that she was part of the family and she was wonderful as a supporting character like her they did a great job in the book like making her and Dale Gunn real characters yeah exactly I think just throughout it all the closest maybe just in terms of their relationship maybe like the Hawks Hawkman mm, and Hawk, okay. Hawkwoman. It's just although Sue never became a hero, it, uh, an honest to goodness superhero. The, the closest she came was running the computers for Justice League Detroit and or Europe. And you know, just in the days of like Flash Thompson becoming Venom or or <laughs> Cliff Carmichael becoming the evil thinker. I get a little bristled when like a human supporting character suddenly becomes a super villain. The big right. that, that leap, and I'm glad Sue never became stretchy woman. Exactly. Well, in a lot of ways, she's sort of their Oberon. You know. Yeah, exactly. She, she's the human on the team who has some of the best lines, who doesn't ever put on the cape, and who is not in charge either. Because you know Max is more like Catherine Colbert in that regard. But yeah, she's she's sort of like the Oberon that you love, and you can't help but cheer for. She and, could have easily been well. In many ways, she filled the same role as, say, Heather Hudson did in Alpha Flight before, mm. as team leader before she became Vindicator or Guardian, whatever she was named when she took on a Max old suit, or Kathy Sutherland in, in The New Defenders. <laughs> like like anyone read that book. Well, anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm just teasing. It was J.M. DiMatteo, so I'm not knocking it. I'm just playing <laughs> So, yeah, without a doubt, everybody loves Sue. I mean, I can't think of anybody that is not a fan of Sue. Oh, no. And, um, yeah, wow. And there there could be a large discussion on what happened to her, but we're not going to... No, 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 no. Nothing bad ever happened to her. Just like nothing bad ever happened to Blue Beetle. Exactly. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for recapping Sue Dibney and how that connected with the Justice League. That was wonderful. And I think I, I'm very, very interested to hear everyone's thoughts in the comments as well about their interactions with Sue. I imagine it'll sort of mirror ours, but everyone's going to have some unique experience with their fandom of that character. So can't wait to hear it. But we need to get to the funny here. It is time for us to cover the Wahaha Award. This is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Greg will pick a moment, and one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, Greg, I'm very interested to hear what funny part of the book you think you'd want to say. It's fine. So I'm just curious. <laughs> what do you think is the funniest moment in the book? I have to say right off the top that this book is not necessarily full of Bwahaha moments. <laughs> You're right. Definitely. But if I had to pick one, it would be towards the end of the book when Captain Adam says, next time, why don't you just decide to blow up the whole damn building, turn the page, and boom! It is not often in the history of this show that's been going for over three years now where the guest and I pick the exact same wahaha moment, sir. But we have, because it is freaking genius. And it's the, it's the page turn is what does it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is laid out perfectly. Had it been on facing pages, the joke, while still probably funny, would not have quite 
quite the same effect. Exactly. And that's one of the things that's unique to comics is the having to read as progressive panels and flipping a page and having a big, I was going to say Kapow moment, but quite literally Kapow moment <laughs> in this one. So yes, uh, without a doubt, the Captain Adam Power Girl Dome Explosion is the winner of the Blahaha Award for this issue. I was actually strongly considered nominating the cover, which yeah. the cover is really, really good and really, really funny. But this one really was just too much to, I, I could not do it. My backup one, and one that I had, was a strong contender, was the I think I'll keep her. Would you yeah. like to rephrase that? But I just recently rewatched Airplane, and it felt like it was like a, an airplane moment. <laughs> <laughs> that works. I like that. That's good. All right. Well, Greg, I need to ask a favor. We have got this horrendous PR nightmare going on here at the embassy. Uh, you may have heard about it where everyone's blaming the, the Justice League here in Paris for every kind of problem they can think of. Would you mind staying here and doing a little spin doctoring and crowd control while I take care of folks' listeners' feedback? Uh, okay. Uh, well, you know what? It'll give you a chance to work more closely with Catherine and Sue on solving this crisis. The two, competent peop- the two competent people <laughs> in the embassy. <laughs> Now, don't worry, Greg. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And while Greg is taking care of this for us, folks, I am going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. Before we get to your feedback, just a little bit of news. Since George and I recorded our segment on Justice League America number 27, it was brought to my attention that there's actually an unpublished Kevin Maguire cover for Justice League number 27 that is different from the Exorcist cover. It is amazing. It was posted on Twitter, apparently came from the Cartoon Art Museum's archives. Our buddy Jake Muir pointed it out to me. It is this shot of Ted Gore Blue Beetle in a straitjacket, sort of at a weird 45 degree angle, in a padded cell with the most maniacal, crazy look on his face. And he's got a word balloon just simply going, <sighs> like he's laughing. It is frightening. So I'll be sure to put that on our website, out on the gallery page, so you guys can see that. Wow. Also, big news. You know, the movie Wonder Woman 1984 is coming out fairly soon. And there are some casting rumors about Maxwell Lord appearing in the film. Crazy. Supposedly, Pedro Pascal has been cast as Maxwell Lord. You might know him from Game of Thrones and Narcos. And at least the articles I'm reading, all they talk about is Maxwell Lord as a villain. So I'm not sure we're going to get to see the Maxwell Lord we love, probably the version from the like post-2005 era. And thanks to Michael O'Brien giving me that heads up. Then, over on Amazon, there is a new listing for a trade paperback that's not scheduled till 2020, but it's called Justice League International Book One Born Again Trade Paperback. Supposedly, if this trade paperback actually happens, it'll collect the first run of the Justice League International series, issues 1 through 17, then you get the two annuals and Suicide Squad number 13. So that's a pretty good run. That'd be pretty cool if they put that out. Supposedly scheduled for January 2020. Retail price would be $24.99. And our thanks to JT the Exterminator for giving us that heads up. And by the way, JT launched earlier this year a cool website. It's superfriendsuniverse.blogspot.com. He's going through celebrating the Super Friends cartoon through his blog, so you should definitely check that out. There's even more news. There is a new miniseries coming out of DC, and the title is, it's, well, it's a play on DC and a play on the word deceased. It's Deceased? Anyway, they, they're doing this miniseries. There's also a one-shot coming out called Deceased, A Good Day to Die, written by Tom Taylor, with art by Derek Robertson and Laura Braga. And the way they describe it is says that the story is set in a world turned mad by a techno-organic rage virus. And in it, apparently, Justice League International alumni are going to be Mr. Miracle, Big Barda, Booster Gold, and Blue Beetle. So, interesting. So, you definitely want 
want to look for that on the horizon. And our thanks to Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast for pointing that out to us. Now, as I get into your feedback, I want you guys to go on the social medias. Get out there, tag us, JLI Podcast on Twitter, Just Like International, Blahaha Podcast on Facebook. You can use our hashtag if you want, which is pound FW Podcast. As I said, this is all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. Also, be sure to go out to our website, which is where most of the conversation is going on and where most of the comments I'm going to be pulling today are coming from, where we're going to be talking about JLA number 26 and JLE number 2 with my guest last episode, Sean Ross and Matt Ev. Also going to be pulling in some of your emails, social media, stuff like that, but just going to be cherry picking what I read because the amount of feedback you guys leave is enormous, which is amazing. And the conversations you guys have just light up my day. But if I read all of it on the air, this podcast will be like eight hours long and nobody wants to hear me talk that long. So our first comment comes from Michael Kramer. Uh, and we asked a lot about Wally West and how skeevy he was being, if that was something that was reflected in his own series. And Michael writes, Wally was never written in his own title as being an overly harassing sleaze. Basically, Wally goes from one relationship to the next. Now he does flirt with a girl here and there. He never pushes it with any of them the way he does with Power Girl and Justice League Europe. That's what I suspected, Michael. Thank you for confirming that for us. Then we heard from Adam Ackerman. It goes by Centaurin. He's in our Denmark embassy. He says, with Huntress, they keep claiming Helena Bertinelli is not a metahuman. But I know this is a lie. There's no way that she could have the time and energy to be his teacher and be Huntress. I mean, if she isn't, then I'm sure Superman's over there going, okay, now that's impressive. (laughs) Now, Adam has also been writing some haikus for us lately. So we get one for last issues, JLA and JLE. He says, he says, Beetle gets a call, a macabre dance with Beetle. Now, who to call in? And then for Justice League Europe, he says, Sue joins in Europe. Global guardians across the world. What do they have planned? (laughs) Thank you, Adam. We really appreciate that. Then we heard from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary. He's also part of the Legion of Superbloggers. And he says, I'm a big fan of Huntress, especially Helena Bertinelli. As an Italian-American, it was great to see someone with her background as a hero, albeit one with an edge. I like the full bodysuit version of her costume and would point to the Nightwing Huntress miniseries as the look that best suits her. Totally agree, Ange. Couldn't agree more. And we're going to get a lot of comments about her costume as we get going here. Then we heard from our buddy Ward Hill Terry. He says, I bought this JLA issue less than a year ago. I bought the JLE issue a little more than a year ago. Why? Because of this podcast. I'm going to try and keep up. That's awesome, Ward Hill Terry. I really appreciate it. That's fantastic to hear that someone's just reading these books now, and it, the podcast has something to do with that. Thank you. He says, I was and am a Ty Templeton fan, and had been since reading his excellent Stig's Adventures. He was perfect for this comic. It looks to me like they gave Beetle a lot of Ditko-esque poses in this chase with Max. I don't think you'll convince me on Mrs. Bertinelli. I'm still mourning the loss of Earth, too. Hey, Ward, totally understand. Both versions of Huntress are, in my opinion, are equally valid. My personal preference is Bertinelli, but I totally get why someone loves Helena Wayne. Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as the JLU cast, Those Wonderful Toys, and several others on our network. He says, I have to agree with Sean. It was fun to revisit this JLA issue and see Beetle get, quote, prevenge, which is another endgame reference for you, on Max. And this definitely got Batman and Helena off on the wrong foot, which is so ironic considering their pre-crisis relationship. Helena even thought of the Earth One Batman as her Uncle Bruce. As for JLE, great call by Matt Ev on Brian Blessed as Dimitri. I never saw that before, but now I can't unsee it, and I don't want to. Then we're from Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog and our Scottish Embassy. He commented on the Huntress ongoing series from the 80s. He says, I like what Joe Staten did with the Zipatone in her own book. Her best costume was the one from her 1989 series, basically the original. Then he goes on to say, I knew the Global Guardians from the Super Friends comics and hated them being turned into adversaries of the League. We talked about how in Just League Europe, Bart Sears made Animal Man totally ripped. And Martin says, It's funny that beefy buddies' bits are covered by the dangling costume. Apparently, bulges are okay in skin-tight costumes, but not in tidy whiteies. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. I appreciate that. 
Then we heard from David Ace Gutierrez, the executive producer of Pod Dylan, my buddy, and the owner and operator of the Katana Banana. And he says, allow me to sing the praises of one huntress. Like Sean, I was probably a little young to be reading, and I paraphrase the, quote, SVU of DC Comics. I was psyched when this title debuted and loved its all-too-brief run. I preferred this version of Helena over the Earth 2 version, and I was very bummed when she was absorbed into the Bat family. When she was established in New York, guarding a small neighborhood, I felt like I was reading a slice of the DCU through a 1970s crime movie filter. She never needed Batman. She didn't need his blessing and all that other nonsense she's been saddled with these days. She was a hero in training with an extremely tragic past trying to make up for the sins of her family. I was very disappointed when Rucka and Burchett retroactively added her that she was inspired by Batman, hence being yet another child of the Bat. Yeah, I can totally see that, David. Then we heard from Damian Whiter from the England Embassy. He says, You're in the era of JLI that I love. The period before Invasion and Breakdowns is my favorite JLI era. And he says, I love the Huntress appearance. I'm a huge Joe Staten fan, so I was really there for her new series. I remember being annoyed that her cape is wrong in this JLA issue. In her own series, it was formed from three triangle shapes, and here it's a classic cape. As I recall, it's mentioned in the letter column that Templeton was working from an earlier design, which was updated too late for the art to be changed. Wow, I had no idea. That's really cool. Damien always finds these super cool like artifacts of comic book history that I had no idea about. Then he goes on to say, you talk about DC pushing her series by featuring her in JLA. Surely it's less the company and more the editor. Andy Helfer edited both books, and I'm sure he just wanted to feature one of his own books in the hopes that he could make it a success. Joey Cavallari, Joe Staden, and Bob Smith are all known for being really nice guys, so I'm sure he wanted to work with them as long as possible. And he says, as for Wally's lecherousness, he was presented as a bit of a horn dog in his own book, but it was definitely exaggerated here. I'm actually quite a big fan of his relationship with Power Girl and how it develops beyond his lustfulness into being people who can really rely on each other. Oh, that's awesome. I look forward to seeing that. Awesome. Thank you, Damien. Up next is my buddy Tim Price, and if you remember, Tim writes these really long dissertations on our website, and I always print them out and read them to my daughter at night to help her go to sleep, and man, like a couple minutes into it, she is out like a light, and Tim really outdid himself this time. It's quite a quite a missive he's written here. <laughs> Tim says, uh, and we have two issues in a row reminding us that Beetle is not a joke. He brings the smack down when he wants to, but so heart-wrenching to see Ted twisted like this in this issue. It's crazy how strongly it still affects me. You know, Tim, you're absolutely right. That's the magic of this book, is you care about the character so much, and when the bad things happen, they mean that much more. And he goes on to say, guys handling the situation should get its due. We see that he'll be a butthead when he can, but he steps out without a Batman or Jean to force him, like in the situation with Fire. This is part of what makes Guy more than a one-note character. Absolutely corrects him, and I think we're starting to see past the sleazoid you know, uh, outer shell into what Guy really has underneath. And he says, speaking of Power Girl, I finally realized why they changed her costume for this series. Gotta get the cape out of the way so it's easier to see her butt, because Keith Giffen's layouts are all about that base. <laughs> You're not wrong. He says, oh, I like the idea of Brian Blessed cast as my boy Dimitri, but he's possibly a little old for the role now. I'll offer another suggestion of Patrick Rothfuss. What do you think? Hm. I'm not personally familiar with Patrick Rothfuss. I googled him. I saw his picture. A little terrifying. <laughs> but yeah, he might work as a Dimitri. And thanks again, Tim, for all your help helping my daughter get to sleep. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald, who now has her own YouTube channel, so check that out. She says, it was awesome to see Huntress. I read the miniseries mostly because as a kid, I love the Wonder Woman bits of her. It was a fun comic. Then she goes on to say, ah, the leather full costume. Yeah, not good armor. Definitely not against a kitchen knife. One, it's hard to move in. Full spandex isn't bad, but leather, ugh. Also, yeah, in France in the summer or LA? No, hiding the shadows won't happen. The sounds and the smell. If you look at UFC and pro boxing, yeah, they're not hitting head to toe parkas. I don't want to see the hero dressed like Namor or Tiger, but head to toe costumes are more about modesty than combat help. Interesting perspective. Thanks, Liz. Then we heard from Euroton Vieira do Carmo, 
from our Brazil embassy, and I probably slaughtered your name as usual, Uerton. I'm terribly sorry about that. He says, this is one of those stories that reminds us that Beetle has feelings despite always being laughed and making jokes. This shows a lot of the talent of writers for character development. Absolutely. Then we're from Paul Hicks from our Australian Embassy in the Waiting for Doom podcast and the DC OCD podcast. Paul says, One of my first conversations I ever had with a woman who would be my wife one day was about the existential weirdness of the Animal Man comic. Mind you, that was back in 1990, but she still remembers it to this day. I'm sure she does, Paul, and she probably hasn't forgiven you yet. Then we're from our buddy Nicholas Alheim. He says, This is the month I jumped in whole on the Justice League books as a kid. Both covers drew me in as the Huntress cover kept me interested in the character. I just started reading despite being way too young to understand what was going on. And I simply love that Bart Sears cover to Justice League Europe number two. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey in the Irish Embassy. We actually haven't heard from Jimmy for a while. So Jimmy writes in to say, Irish Embassy is still here at Ward Hill, Terry. Sorry, but the introduction of Justice League Europe is causing hassle with the transporters. I try to go to Paris, and Shag's in the New York Embassy. I go to New York, and Shag's transported to Paris. Now the transporters have all malfunctioned, and I'm stuck in, ugh, kahooey, kahooey, kahooey. What the? <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. I always appreciate your comments. They give me a laugh. And he says, sorry for the lack of comments. Work and other issues have not allowed me to comment. I have listened to the episode and enjoyed them greatly and hopefully we'll be back to full commenting mode next month. Thank you, Jimmy. We always look forward to hearing from you and we know you are with us in spirit in the Irish Embassy. They heard from my pal Jose Rivera. He says, as for this version of Huntress, I was all in. The Helena Bertinelli version was always my favorite because I felt like it was a rare time in a post-crisis origin that they did something that was not only different but better. I too love what's lovingly referred to her as her total justice look. <laughs> Aesthetically, it looks amazing and it's not gratuitous. We can also believe she can disappear into the shadows in this outfit. Outfit. I was never a fan of Jim Lee's redesign in Hush. It took the character back a step. As for Justice League Europe, is it just me or the Global Guardians serving the same function the champions of Angor did in the early issues of Justice League International? An example, using a previously established team as a foil to the new Justice League team. Just something to think about. You know, Jose, I did not put a connection between the heroes of Angor and Global Guardians, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hmm, interesting. Then we heard from Scott Madsen. He says he's a longtime listener, his first time writing in. He was just at the Phoenix Fan Fusion event this weekend, and Ty Templeton was a guest, and he was able to chat with him. He had a quick mention about his works with Justice League International and on Who's Who, and Ty did tell him that his favorite JLI character was Big Barda, and he spoke fondly of the Who's Who cover he did with the backyard barbecue scene, which I believe was in Update 88, issue number four for Who's Who. You know, Scott, that's awesome. I'm so glad you got a chance to talk to Ty Templeton, and hearing that Big Barda is his favorite character, that makes a lot of sense, because in his earlier issues, he really, really spent some time giving her some lovingly rendered panels. So, awesome. Thank you, Scott. They were from Trent Lewis. He says, I have love for all incarnations of the Huntress, but prefer the Helena Bertinelli version in the post-crisis world as well. I will admit, you can't beat the pedigree of Helena Wayne's version, but we all know that DC will never allow this version to be Huntress in the post-crisis universe. Aside from the JLA-JSA team-ups and a short stint in the New 52, Miss Wayne has never gotten any real residency time in the DC Prime universe. Mrs. Bertinelli was a great successor and earned the character name. I love it when they brought her in with Booster Gold and Friends. Couldn't agree more, and I'm really surprised at all the love for Helena Bertinelli in the comments. I, again, I think both versions are valid. My personal favorite is Bertinelli, and I'm so happy to see so many people feel the same way. Then we heard from our buddy Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist. He's part of the Long Box Crusade Network, and he, he is our buddy who goes jogging and listening to JLI. He was out in 100-degree weather down in Alabama and did a 5K listening to the JLI podcast. So, Jared, glad to see you finish the race, and thanks for listening, as always, buddy. Then we heard from our buddy David Cabal, and he just wanted to let us know that he's loving the new theme 
theme music for Justice League Europe, and of course, the theme we used at the beginning of the show as well. Thank you, David. Really appreciate it. Heard from a new listener, Slasher McSplitter, <laughs> who has his own YouTube channel covering old school comics and video games. You should check it out. He says, listening to the podcast now, really good stuff. Well, thank you, Slasher. And then Abel Padilla wrote in, he goes, looking at Power Girl now, I think I'm leaning more towards Amanda Burse from Married with Children or Marky Post from Night Court. Ah, here it is. Thank you, Abel. So yes, he's the one who first mentioned Marky Post that I saw, and now that's kind of stuck in my head. I'm really seeing Marky Post and Denise Crosby when I look at those Barsier's drawings of Power Girl. And then got a nice message from Danny Dow. He says he's a big fan of the podcast. Well, thanks so much, Danny. Really appreciate it. And want to give a big shout out to the website boosterific.com. Our buddy over there runs a fantastic Booster Gold website, and he was kind enough to pimp the JLI podcast on there recently. Thanks so much. Now, this is the part of the show where I want to thank everybody who shared our show on their social media timeline, which is Facebook and Twitter. I know it's a long list of names. I say it every month, folks. However, just remember, these folks showed their support. They helped promote the show. They pimped it out there for us, and they're helping to spread the word and helping this community grow. So it's really important to me that we recognize these individuals. There's a lot of folks on here that don't get mentioned elsewise in the comments, and they are part of the family as well. This time out, we are looking at over 85 names of folks who helped promote this episode. Our community continues to grow. Please, please, if you want to be on this list, it's real simple. Facebook or Twitter, just share or retweet the post. That's all you got to do. So our thanks to Aaron Head Moss, Al Girding, Armando V. Button, Between the Pages, Bill Beer, Caleb Nauer, Cash Flag, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics, Comic Books with a number one instead of an I, Craig Carter, Sonara Tregarth, Damian Whiter, Danny Dowell, David Ace Gutierrez, David Cabal, Debbie Rangel, Delvin Cox, Diablo Frank and the Rolled Spine Podcast Network, Diego Segovia, Dr. Pop Culture from the Bowling Green State University, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine, Ebtisam, Ed Moore, Eduardo Escobar, Frederico Hernandez, Geek Brain Popcast, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Grabs Granite, Green Lantern HG, Greg Arujo, I have no idea who that is, Huntress Batgirl Podcast, Into the Weird, Ivan Cudley, Jack Rocha, James McCarthy, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, Jay Powers, Jeff Polier, Jeffrey Brown, Justice's First Dawn, Justice Track 2019, Kichi Baker, Con L, Chris Dados, Liz Ann Oswalt, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Kogan, Matt Ebb and his account Ultron is my Elvis, Matthew Cody, Max Romero and his It's Plastic Man and the Mirror Factory accounts, Michael Kramer, Michael O'Brien, Nicholas Alheim, Noel Deal, Pablo Lamothe, Paul Hicks, Paul Kean, Paul Matthew Carr, Pulp the Pixel Podcasts, Ruth and Darren Sutherland with their Rad Adventures Network and the Xenozoic Xenophiles, Randy Caldwell, Read More Comics, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Richard Field, Rob Kelly and his Superman Movie Minute and Pod Dylan accounts, Roger Prebe, Ryan Daly, Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Super Lad Kid, The Bat Pod, The Voice of Paul, Tim Price, Tom Beach, Warlock Thanos Podcast, and Zoom Yukonori. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, guys. And this community of JLI fans, they're just wonderful. And we're building this fantastic community together. And I'm so thankful for all of you. And if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am really sorry. It was probably Sean Ross or Matt Ebb's fault. If so, just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming. Again, go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post. That's where most of the activity is going on. Also, you can head up our Facebook page, Justice League International Bahaha Podcast, or on Twitter, JLI Podcast. And of course, we've got our email, which is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Sean and Matt for helping me cover Justice League America number 26 and Justice League Europe number 2. And thanks to you listeners. Yes, you. The one with the earbuds is listening at work when he's supposed to be doing that TPS report and instead you're listening to this nonsense. Thank you for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. When we come back, we're going to see if we can bring George and Greg together in the same embassy. 
The world's strongest hero. The warrior from a hidden island. The master of super speed. The wielder of the weapon from beyond the stars. The champion of the seven seas. They are the only ones standing before a world beyond the brink of collapse. Their mission, abolish war and crime, eliminate poverty and hunger, clean the environment, cure disease, even stop death itself. They promise within a year to make the world a utopia, no matter how many lines they might need to cross. Coming soon to the Pulp to Pixel Network, the Squadron Supreme Cast, an exploration of Mark Gruenwald's epic 1985 Squadron Supreme miniseries, a look at the heroes, the villains, the fine lines separating them, and how this miniseries continues to play an influence in mainstream superhero comics. You are receiving a transmission from The Rod Pod. Upload pending. Stand by for soundtrack transfer. I am Maggie. And I am John. And we are trapped, hurtling through space in a ship shaped like Rodimus's head. The ship, for reasons we haven't been able to determine, contains the entire run of the IDW Transformers Phase 2 comic. Which chronicle the events following the end of the war between the Autobots and Decepticons. So we figure we may as well read them all in order and report our findings to you. Stand by. Stand by. Upload complete now. Pod. Look for us at marriedwcomics.libsyn.com, at iTunes, at Stitcher, or wherever good podcasts can be found. So, uh, till all are one. Till all are one. Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear that the JLI teleporter has successfully brought George and Greg together for us. Fantastic. First, George, I got to tell you, man, thank you so much for doing this show. It means so much to me. You've done some amazing work out there, and for you to take the time for this little show, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And your passion for the JLI is just absolutely astonishing. Thank you so much for being here. Now, would you please tell the listeners at home where they can find your works, where they can find you, you know, where are you on the interwebs? Uh, See, the best place to find me is my website, www.georgeoconnorbooks.com. You can find everything there from Olympians to Captain Awesome to Super Turbo and all points in between. I'm also been trying to use the Instagram a lot lately. Mm. I, uh, I'm the George O'Connor. Been putting up some sketches of upcoming projects. Been doing a little bit of a self-criticism on some of my older books. And then you'll see a lot of pictures of my cats, too, probably. <laughs> I understand you have two terrible cats and one good one. Is that right? That's the breakdown currently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on to talk about this particular issue, especially. I would have been happy to do just about any issue of the Justice League International run. This one really means a lot to me. I think it's a real strong turning point for the series. Uh, it's such a showcase for the artistry of Ty Templeton. It really, all of the creators are firing in all cylinders. It's an example of amazing comics, and I'm glad to have been able to spend the last bit of time talking with you about it. Well, it's been an absolute blast, and I can't tell you how much your insight 
insight into the comic book creative process, I think really brought a lot to the discussion. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. Now, Greg, I really, really appreciate you being on the show. This is, I think, our third time podcasting together. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think uh, you appeared twice on my two shows, The Secret Wars and Beyond and The Squadron Supreme Cast over at the Pulp to Pixel Network. Exactly. And both of those times, we were saddled with that other guy, Sean. This is our first chance to do this, so, uh, you know, mano a mano, and this has been an absolute blast, man. Absolutely. You know, when I move on to my next thing, I might have to discuss whether or not we want to keep Sean on. Hmm. I'm just saying, you could drop your CV over at the Fire and Water Podcast Network, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe the lawyers could draw something up. Okay, I have to double check what my contract looks like over at Pulp the Pixel, but I'm sure there might be some wiggle room in there. Well, I don't know. Dr. G is a real big RPG guy, so he knows how to really finesse the rules of a system, so you might be locked in. I don't know. There are some points in there that have font that's like two points. That, that, <laughs> you know, it's much like the iTunes agreement. Kind of scan through them and just click, yes, I agree to them. So Yeah, that's the internet's greatest lie. Yes, I agree to the terms and conditions. And, and you know, the, the cheating with little tiny font does sound like a total Palladium games move. That That's a joke only Dr. G gets, but it, it fits with his type. So, all right. Well, Greg, thanks again for being here. I sincerely appreciate well, it. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, you know, it's only been a four-year wait, so... <laughs> You were one of the first people booked for the show. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) But in this case, it was definitely worth the wait. I paid him to say that, folks. All right, that's going to do it. Now, come back next month when we cover Justice League America, number 28, and Justice League Europe, number four. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You're just going to have to wait and find out next month. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm George. And I'm Greg. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?